people ask me all the time, David, are you afraid of death? I said, absolutely not. Not one bit. Not even a gut like, oh God. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We are going to be chatting with David Solomon a little bit later about the Dead Saints Chronicles. But first, as always, Graham, what's the big deal about waterboarding anyway, Dunlop? How's it going, buddy? Well, I didn't say that. Don't make, <laughs> don't put words in my mouth. Jeez, no, you said it. <laughs> it doesn't you said it doesn't so. look that bad. <laughs> now you're going to blame me. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, if you're going to get tortured, you might as well. I'd rather get waterboarded than get something like shoved under my fingernail. Or, or the electricity shock. Yeah, or get shock. my finger cut off or just waterboard me. Why did, what did, why did you bring this up? I don't understand up. why the torture thing comes up right away. Uh, I think there was a picture of someone getting waterboarded when I was looking at the Super Tuesday results. Wow. It was next to a picture of Trump. <laughs> well, I think that we should waterboard each other this summer. See if it works? And well, see I, how terrible it is. I'm really? see if do I can get you to admit to something. Uh, okay, we'll, I'll try it. I'll do it. I'll do we'll it. each hide some shit. We could each take five minutes and we'll hide something someplace in the yard. And then we'll see how long <laughs> who can put up with waterboarding the longest <laughs> and give up their treasure. It'll be like Jack Black in uh, in the brink. He's getting tortured because they think he works for the CIA. He's like, I tried to get into the CIA. Those fucking fuckers wouldn't hire me. It's oh, really yeah. funny. Yeah, it's yeah, fucking hilarious. It. I've seen it. It was okay. I'll waterboard you to find out where you made the fake crop circle. It'll be like, what did you use for a symbol? Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll know because it'll be on the front page of the Calgary Herald. Oh, better be a Moai. It's a flight path. I know you're under a flight path. Why don't I just put the URL so I can just come fucking. The, the URL to Mr. the guy. Dunlop. <laughs> Mr. Darren. <clears throat> Anyways, I'm doing good. We got lots of talk about. I think it's not bad. You just episode. get charged for like the crops you rack. So I mean, we just might have to buy a couple hundred bucks worth of canola. Just send us your cash for to replace the crops. Replace the crops. Racks. That'll be yeah. a good. It'll be a good fucking. Yeah, that's true. It'll be perfect in the newsletter. Me and crop crop replacement. <laughs> we have a picture of the cutout for the newspaper. Local man charged us. Yeah. Making crops. And then us. underneath it. Listeners donate to replace. I could just, I could just <laughs> donate picture to them. pay for fine. I could just picture me sitting in a fucking courtroom one day and then playing this audio. <laughs> He's talking about making it. This is premeditated. Yeah, that's how they get you. So, anyways, we talk about to David Solomon, Solomon about uh, a lot of near-death experiences, the sort of historical stuff, and what he's kind of named uh, the Dead Saints Chronicles, basically like life's research into NDEs. It's pretty fascinating stuff. We get into all kinds of stuff, um, you know, sort of the trends and the correlations and whether it's sort of religious or or not and the types of dying experiences, and he's kind of broken down the different types of NDEs. It's It's pretty fascinating stuff. He was a friend of um, John Anthony West. That's how we we hook up. We hooked up with him. Yeah, very interesting. 
Yeah, Dave, it's great. You guys will uh, really enjoy it. Yeah, he's been through some of his own personal experiences recently with some cancer and stuff, so it's uh, it gets pretty heavy at moments, but it's a great chat. The subtitle of the book is A Zen Journey Through the Christian Afterlife. So he's got quite a, a Zen influence. It does have a bit too. of a Christian spin, but I mean, it, it still, a lot of that stuff still hits home. In the book, he talks about his bonsai, bonsai mastery and how gardening uh, bonsais really correlates with like the spiritual stuff and near-death experiences, and it's, it's very cool. Bonsai. <laughs> yeah, nice try. No? <clears throat> no. What so we got, we got lots to talk about. We've got to talk what about our new talk about uh, first? No, let's go through some synchronicities and stuff. I got to say, we got the best listeners. They send us great stories. Like, it's just fascinating. <laughs> I hope this gets stuck in James's head. It's time for another installment of the Canadian third Sounds like Ephraim. You think everybody sounds like Ephraim? Who did you think sounded like Ephraim? The other jingle you think is Ephraim. You just have a weird Ephraim complex because he's our first guest. Yeah, maybe. And he's such a such a cool dude we got people emailing about ice spikes from i know from we're getting ice like, spikes sent in all over the place people are explaining about ice spikes and then we have owl synchronicities Some people on the youtube channelers telling a couple people are arguing about ice spikes. really what about it one guy says it's a new type of freezer they happen all the time no way i've never seen one i haven't made ice i don't make ice sorry i'm not about to start you're you're a play- <laughs> I know you were gonna do it during the episode. I just don't. It's Why already not? made. Why in bags? You buy bags of ice? No, my wife just has. She's oh, she on makes top the of ice. the ice. Situation. Oh my god, you're a, you're a sexist ice maker. Ice no, I'd maker. be happy to make the ice, but she just does it all the time. I don't really use ice either, so no, it's I don't like use a lot my situation is that I'm never using the ice. You know when I use ice when I make the kids soup. They need some ice. Why are you rubbing your nipple, you <laughs> thought, creepy motherfucker? I thought maybe that's how you're using the ice. Oh. <laughs> no, I use no. it for soup. That's a good idea, though. I'll put that in my playbook. Yeah, you should. It works good. Perfect. So, you got a sync Oh, well, I want to talk to, shout out to Matt. just going to keep fucking yapping? I want to shout out to Matt because he's, he's got a blog there, a little blog on the website. I was thinking a we should. blog? That's yeah, we should. Should we read that? Condescending. What? <laughs> Should we read that? His what? his psychedelics and the UFO phenomena. He kind of put a request out on our site for people. Yeah, absolutely. So he says, hello, great Americans. I'm attempting to write a book that deals with psychedelics and the UFO phenomena. I'm interested in collecting anecdotal reports from people who have had these experiences while on a mind-altering substance. While I'm not necessarily looking for entity encounters, as that can go into a whole different realm, I'm open to reports that do include the abduction and physical contact with beings while maintaining the UFO experience itself. I've had an experience myself on LSD with three other friends about 16, 17 years ago, and it has stayed with me. So I'm approaching this as an experiencer and participant. Please feel free to email me at altruziangracemedia at yahoo.com. And you can visit his author page at Matt Schmitz and his blog. So I'm going to link to all that. Did we talk about his new little short story? Uh, no. 
No, check but that he, out while you're there. Yeah, he's got a short story on there as well. So you can check out our bloggers by clicking on the blog tab, and as well, you can. I'll link to this one um, in the show notes. And he sent in a synchronicity actually recently um, from the owl episode, which is another episode that we're getting all this crazy feedback with from um, people having owl sightings. Right, Darren? Which is very strange. I don't have an owl jingle. Woohoo. Lion and bird sings. You ready? Woohoo. Yep. I don't know that song. Gray, I've been busy lately, but wanted to get this to you. I've had a few synchronicities a couple weeks ago when I heard and then saw an owl fly at night in my backyard from south to north. I never see owls. I hear them occasionally, but never see them. The next day, I heard the Mysterious Universe show with Mike Cleland. The day after that, in the very early morning, I saw another owl, a large one, fly south to north in my front yard. Then the following day, I heard the Mike Cleland on Grey America. Four days in a row of owl exposure. A few days ago, I had the overwhelming notion to email Mike for some advice on writing a book and getting anecdotes from people as I'm attempting to, that book on the correlation between psychedelics and UFOs. In that email, I confessed my recent owl synchronicities. Fast forward to last night. I've been really caught up in psychedelics research, particularly DMT and psilocybin. Before bed, I went out for one last smoke and was looking around and observing the landscape. Quit smoking. The sky was overcast and reflected the orangish glow of the nearby city lights so I could see the silhouettes of trees and such. My eyes were drawn up to some trees, two houses down, and there was the black silhouette of a large owl sitting on a branch. I walked maybe t 20 feet closer, and even though it was dark, there was no doubt of what it was. I felt like it was watching me, and I almost had this giddy feeling, somewhat nervous, like pre-adrenaline rush. I remember staring at it until I finished my smoke and went back inside. Something else weird I noticed was the branch that the owl perched on was the base of a pyramid shape followed by formed by the branches of two trees. It basically looked like an owl within a triangle. Now, something seemingly possibly unrelated, before I awoke this morning, I was having a dream of being in a room, sitting in a big, comfortable brown leather recliner chair. I stated that I would definitely smoke DNT if I had it. An unknown figure then appeared and handed me a small bronze pipe with a reddish-orange chunk in the bowl. I knew Wait, this, this was a dream? Yes. That's right before he woke up. I knew this was DMT and proceeded to smoke. I messed up the first hit, but inhaled some, and I felt the dream world pulling away or stretching, but it bounced back. I frantically tried hitting the pipe again so as not to lose this chance, but my lighter was failing to work. I finally got the flame going, only to see that the waxy substance had melted into a watery, watery liquid that wouldn't burn. Then my alarm went off. Fuck. This was not a lucid dream, but it was that it's been rare that I remember any dreams lately. And I've never smoked DMT or I've ever seen it personally. I'm of the opinion that my brain was producing extra DMT during this dream and producing its initial effects that I felt. Makes me wonder what would have happened if I had successfully in taking the heroic four hits that needed to break on through. The rest of the morning, I've been bombarded with the number 33. What the fuck does this all mean? I feel like there's more in store. Cheers, Matt. More in store. I like it. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. More owls. Owls and DMT. 
Oh, actually, that reminds me. Do you want? Should I? Should I? <laughs> speaking of, what does it remind you? <laughs> the mute button. Oh, are we going to talk about that? I have a synchro, guys. Allegedly, I was listening to episode one five eight on iTunes today. Around thirty seven fifty two, I may have heard something like a thumb turning with a striker on the lighter. Flick, flick, two times. Then at the thirty eight oh eight mark, a slight cough. It's about sixteen second inhale. While I can neither confirm nor deny that at those exact same moments I may or have may not have been doing the exact same thing. Two strikes, one cough. Darren? <laughs> Many synchros with you cats. Life is interesting and whimsical. Cheers, guys. I'll give it a seven. And that was from that was from TJ Bickleborough. <laughs> So we, we thought we were muting, or he thought he was muting, but he hasn't been. So there's your evidence that you haven't been. Well, I have been. I've only been muting our headphones. Good job, buddy. And the guest. So the guests don't hear it. Everyone else does. Unless the guests listen later on, then they hear yeah. it. It's a good thing we're <clears throat> polite Canadian boys and we're not talking yeah. bad about anything. I don't think we've done anything too crazy. But I fi we fixed that problem now, too, so... That's right. Might not be fixed for this particular interview because we just fixed the problem today. <laughs> we did this interview a week ago. So, surprise. Surprise. What else you got? <clears throat> I've got a compound synchronicity. Oh, did I? Was I supposed to rate that? The little that one? That's tough to rate. No, you can't They're rate both the tough way. to rate. Yeah, the owl ones, that's a compound synchronicity too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fucking picking up the owl thing. I'm not as excited about it as you are. The owl thing? Yeah. Well, a lot of people have seen owls after listening to the episode, like directly after or as they're listening. That's pretty crazy to me. We should talk it's about cars. I bet you everyone's going to see cars tomorrow. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Cars are so rare. <laughs> Let's pick a type of car. All right. A black Bentley came to mind. I don't know why. Come on. What? You're picking a Bentley. A black Bentley? If you, you'll be, watch you see like six black Bentleys on your way home. Right before they fucking snatch you up. I seen a Bentley the other day downtown. Oh. Yeah, nice. Yeah, you know, you want to talk about manifesting all your this, dreams? All this uh, share the wealth and blah, 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 but fuck, I want my Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that make me? Greedy. Greedy. Motherfucker. Yeah. I knew it. But I'm not greedy. I just want a Bentley. I want every, everyone can have a Bentley for all I care. Right enough, I buy you a Bentley. I'm sure you truly appreciate the quality and not just do it for materialistic reasons. It just looks so badass. Really? Okay, that's enough of the Bentley. Okay. Can I? So I have a compound synchronicity. This a is what I'm calling compound? this. Yeah. Is that like a Gramerica coined term? Uh, it could be, hopefully. Can you describe it? <clears throat> Many different things happening through different timelines, all sort of correlating towards one compound synchronicity. So it's just a synchronicity. synchronicity. So I'm listening to Duncan Trussell podcasts. This is yours? No, it, but oh. I, 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 I'm part of the, com I make it compound as well, right? How? 
Oh, you're I'm adding about to, to it? Tell you. You're adding to I'm it? I'm okay, adding okay. to it, yes. This is what makes it exciting. It happens a lot. Not as going to be as good as my 66 hours. No. So I'm driving to work, listening to Duncan Trussell. Uh, I see this email pop through. I was at a red light, of course. You want email, me to read it? No, it just says Duncan Trussell synchronicity on it. Oh. Wow. That's just part of it. Okay. It just adds to the complexity. <laughs> I think it might take away. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, this is from Jessica. She says, Dear Graham, and I really was listening to Duncan Trussell when this popped through. I don't really cool. care. <clears throat> I don't want to get too complicated with this synchronicity. How, how many hi, podcasts Darren. do you listen to? Hi, Darren. How many podcasts do you listen to? Lots. How many? Like that's, 20? I was thinking about the percentage 20? of that. No, yeah. no, I was thinking about the percentage of that. It's probably 0.5% no, of the podcasts no, I listen to. No. I'd listened to four audiobooks before that. Like, I don't even, you know, always listen to podcasts. Uh, you, you know how many I, I have in here. Like, look. Yeah, but how many you listen to? Do you listen to every Duncan Trussell? No, not even close. Like, one out of... I have 332 unlistened to right there. You're a weird little man. <laughs> <laughs> so she says that she doesn't want to get too complicated with the synchronicity. Hi, Darren. <laughs> but it unfolded heavily in the first week after your interview with the comedian Duncan Trussell this summer and slowly culminated into a nice Christmas slash New Year's present from the universes. So lovely, it was hard to ignore. I listened to your podcast 130 with Duncan Trussell in mid-August. The only other Duncans I know are my four-year-old son and Duncan Jones, who is Davey, Davey, David Bowie's son. My son was named after the character Duncan Idaho in the Frank Herbert books. I used to live down the block from David Bowie in lower New York and did not know his son was a Duncan until after my Duncan was born and I discovered the song Kooks from David Bowie's Hunky Dory. Most notable was that during your interview with Duncan Trussell, Red Pill Junkie identified an interview between Duncan and his mother from the Duncan Trussell Family Hour as an all-encompassing and life-changing conversation. I put that info in my back pocket as something I might want to listen to in times of personal trouble, then moved on. I live in Los Angeles. The next day I was passing the comedy store, the comedy club on Sunset Boulevard, and was stuck in traffic. There was Duncan Trussell's name on the marquee. The next day after that, I took my son Duncan to his favorite place in L.A., the Griffith Observatory. A woman approached me there and said, Your son is named Duncan? My favorite comedian is named Duncan. I replied, You mean Duncan Trussell? Okay, I get it. The person, this person is saying stuff I want to hear. I subscribe to his podcast. The first episode I choose is an interview with Jack Cornfield, which is great, by the way. We should get Cornfield on. This was some this was someone my roommate in New Zealand fifteen years ago tried to get me into when I was living there in early two thousand and one. I was in New Zealand at the time because I had an extreme urge to leave New York City, my home. On the day with the airplanes and the buildings, I was as far away as possible. There were four years of premonitions involved before that, but let's skip this. Four days after listening to your Great America podcast with Duncan Trussell, I was camping with my family on the beach on the edge of Malibu. The couple next to us lived within blocks of my son's preschool and had a professional relationship to Joe Rogan. A Duncan Trussell connection, of course. Honestly, I threw up my hands in submission at this point. My biggest issue since 2001 in the buildings slash airplanes thing is that I have felt like I ended up in the wrong timeline. And yet, here I am now, 
with an amazing son and husband. This disconnect has generally sapped my happiness. It turns out Duncan Trussell lived in a neighborhood we had lots of business success in, and he recently moved to a neighborhood we are moving to now. This is where I ran into Duncan Trussell on December 26th, somewhat closing the circle. I'm still not sure if I am in the right timeline since all sorts of human injustices are still common, but it's nice to know that folks out there who believe as I believe about the goodness of humans exist and that they talk about it, and Gray America is all about that too. I skipped over lots of details. Hopefully this still qualifies as a synchronicity. Thanks. So that's what I call a compound one. And Darren's speechless. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. It's pretty cool, eh? Thanks for it's the email, Jessica. Duncan. A lot of Dunkins. Yeah, the only Duncan I know is Dunkin' Donuts. No doubt. You're crushing them things, fucking three at a time. <laughs> I'm going to give it a seven point uh, four two. Nice. It would have been an eight if it wasn't for your little <laughs> spiel at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so you can thank Graham for that one, Jessica. He took you down. What uh what else you got? Well, I wanna I wanna talk about a possible segment I might wanna do. And we gotta talk about and we gotta talk about our new uh, the ring. new little initiative here in Grand America. So why are we talking about the segment on air and not What? Why are we bringing? Why are you bringing up the new segment? No, it's it's my segment of uh, of this. This I have a uh, copy of the Senate report on weather modification programs, problems, policy, and potential because the climate debate has come up a couple times, and I'm kind of excited about this Senate report from 1978 that talks about that. How old were you then? Like 22? I was eight. Okay. I was born in 70. My sister was born in 74. So that was you know we were young. Back then. <laughs> so you're watching G.I. Joe. <clears throat> I don't even think so, man. Probably MASH or something like that. I fucking love MASH. Yeah. So can I just uh this is a this is a seven hundred and eighty four page Senate report from nineteen seventy eight and they talk about weather modification going back to nineteen forty six and nineteen forty seven. And they talk about the history of it as well. So it's so big and so so much information. There's some really fascinating stuff about all the different ways they were modifying weather for decades. I was thinking about maybe breaking it down into like four or five little like do like make a jingle, do a little segment on weather modification. We could have like storm and rain and then sun and birds chirping. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just let me take care of the jingles there, bud? I'm serious. I'm, I'm excited about this. So okay. can I read a couple paragraphs from this? Uh, just to wet just your to whistle? tease it? Yeah. You want to tease it a little bit? So this is the letter that was requesting the study. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, come on. Really? This is, uh, this is the U.S. Senate... Committee on, of, on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. This is from July 30th, 1976. This is the letter requesting the study. This is a paragraph out of this. 
Actually, okay. So weather modification, although a relatively young science, has over the years stimulated great interest within the scientific, commercial, governmental, and agricultural communities. It says, while weather modification projects have been operational for nearly 25 years, now this is in 78, so... Mm. And have been shown to have significant potential preventing per, for preventing, diverting, moderating, or ameliorating the adverse effects of such weather-related disasters and hazards. I am greatly concerned regarding the lack of a coordinated federal weather modification policy and a coordinated and comprehensive program for weather modification research and development. Hmm. The letter of submittal now. I've got a paragraph highlighted out of that. This is the Library of Con Congress Congressional Research Service, June 19th, 1978. The study reviews the history, technology, activities, and a number of special aspects of the field of weather modification. Activities discussed are those of the federal, state, and local governments, of private organizations, and of foreign nations. Consideration is given to international, legal, economic, and ecological aspects. There are also an introductory, uh, introductory trap chapter, which includes a summary of issues, a chapter discussing inadvertent weather and climate modification, weather and climate modification, weather and climate modification, and a chapter summarizing recommendations from major federal policy studies. Sounds like the start of the climate change debate. Pretty much. But Senator Juan around weather control. So the gist of it is, and it's like very, very comprehensive. <clears throat> you know, they've been fucking around with the weather for decades. And now they want to blame us, the debt slaves, and insti instigate their little <laughs> financial tools of slavery. I think everyone wants to control the weather. Yeah. Especially but farmers. But what effect does it have, right? That's the, that's the thing, right? Well, how they've been messing around with the weather for decades and nobody takes that into account when it comes to climate change debate? Or is it being taken into account? I don't know. I don't, I don't think know. I mean, we don't get too deep into it, but that's pretty fascinating stuff. I want to go over some of that. Yeah, you should read it. There's some pretty cool get timelines. It down. Memorize it. It's interesting. I mean, I can, I can, I can even just go through and like pick out a couple no, things no. right now. No, no, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> Darren and Graham going deep. <laughs> it's a profound UFO quote of a week. Words to ponder and critique. <laughs> It's a profound UFO quote of the week. Well, you caught me. You got me. <laughs> I'm unprepared. Still unprepared? No, I'll just pick a first one here. I'll pick an early one here. Oh, fuck, I just lost it. <laughs> <clears throat> we have a success. This is, this is the, uh, yeah, he finally beat me. So this is the, the profound UFO quote of the week. That was even the long jingle. I know. <laughs> I had... I had access to special libraries, so we could go up to the library that the Air Force ran and sort of paw through top secret material. Since I was interested in UFOs, I'd look to see what they had. For about a year, I was getting quite a few hits. Then all of a sudden, 
the whole subject material vanished. The entire classification for the subject just vanished. That's from McDonnell Douglas Aerospace Engineer Dr. Robert Wood. R.W. Wood? Yeah. It sounds like an X-Files-y thing. Sure. What uh, I did, uh, want, the other thing I wanted to mention was our buddy Dave Matheson. His second book just come out, his second volume. Star Miss, and he's going to be... The big one that we have here? Volume 2 now. Greek, Already? The Greek ones, yeah. Wow, really? He's going to be Graham Hancock, author of the month. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so congrats, Dave. Big congrats to our buddy Dave. And, uh, yeah, we'll clear out a spot on the bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll clear out a shelf. We'll need a whole new coffee table the, for that book. By the time the vol all the volumes are done. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to when my kids are old enough to start going through it with them. Mm -hmm. It's really more like an encyclopedia of star constellations and myths. And so, congrats, Dave. There was something else too. I can't fucking remember it. Of course, what we're talking about? Yeah, the gift. Uh, we have to uh, talk about the fundraiser. Right. Right. The big one. Yeah. So we decided we need a new computer. Yeah, well, we're trying to be proactive here. The computer well, we, had we have, the computer we, yeah, our buddy James, uh, the new computer or the old computer that we have is nine years old. So we're trying to be proactive. That's what we're using to record the computer. Like we can't use one of our laptops to do that. So it's really just, we need something to, to, to use with a better audio card and it's going to improve the quality and the durability and the reliability. So we're thinking about ways of doing it, and um, we're thinking of, well, we are doing a little giveaway thing. We're going to give away an iPad loaded with some Grimerica stuff on it, books, and a bunch of surprises. Surprises? And a bunch of swag as well. That's right. We'll and have a mouse pad, mug, shirts, a couple of shirts, magnets. Yeah. <clears throat> Come on the show. Yeah, and then oh, you come on, get your you iPad guest host, mini. Uh, so the winner can also guest host on a show as well. Pick a guest and uh, come on and, and co-host with us. Kind of like James did with uh, Stanton Friedman. Very similar. Yeah. That was our first kind exactly. of one like that. Which, of course, anyone can do for uh, once you reach the $432 donation mark. You get to do that, but someone can do that for 20 bucks here. So what we're doing is we're basically selling tickets, right? For twenty bucks, we're not three, selling anything. three for fifty. We're get, we're accepting donations, donations and we'll put your name in the draw. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So donations of twenty dollars or three for fifty. Yeah. And we're gonna just use that money, which is gonna be the the computer's gonna cost around two thousand dollars. We think so. We're only gonna sell. We're only gonna give away one hundred twenty five tickets. <laughs> yep. Well, we're down to one hundred eighteen. No, one hundred seventeen left. Yeah, so people have already started just through social media and stuff like that. So yeah, and then we'll uh, yeah. So yeah, if you can, if you, if you're interested in the prize pack, you get a, you're gonna get a can of spam in there as well. Look, we'd rather do that instead of doing some crowdfunding project or instead of getting ads or whatever. Like, I'd rather just fundraise and buy this computer now than than have yours crash and then a scramble around to try and get it right. 
Exactly. We also want to thank everybody for donating and reviewing the show because we did some accounting as well and we're covering a lot of our fixed expenses through people's subscriptions now. So that's been like really, really good. I mean, it really saves yeah, us. Yeah, we're, right, we're there money. now. So and we, we, all our got, content is free, right? We've got a lot of extra right? expenses no, that maybe We'll cover eventually, but as far as like fixed monthly expenses go, yeah. we're doing good with, with the subscribers. So All that shit costs money. Yeah. Podcast oh, it's crazy when you start set. adding it all up. You're like, uh, wow, all these little things. Five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. So, In fairness... We it's want not it. like a lot of that stuff we never really paid out of pocket. Like a lot of those little features that I we just kind of added on, like the website player, like that, that fucking adds up quick though when you put it down on paper. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our, actually, you know, that doesn't even include uh, that we base we base that on that's our monthly subscribers. Those are the guys that really pay the bills because sometimes we'll go a month or two months without getting a a donation. Yeah a regular donation, but our subscribers are always there for us. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to thank bill. everybody. So they're, they're the guys that, I mean, really all our listeners. Oh, thanks to, for helping us keep stay, the lights on and, stay and pay for the internet, well, right? stay ad free and not go to paywalls and stuff like that. Are the, uh, the few subscribers we have that, uh, subscribe to a monthly plan and, yeah, and we want to thank the people that review the show, too, because I'm sure as, as we approach guests to come on the show and all that, if they do any homework and check us out and they see the good reviews, I'm sure it helps us. Uh, we've got a couple pretty pretty big guests coming up, and I'm sure that that all helps people, right? People like leaving honest reviews. Yeah, and the biggest thing, of course, is sharing the show. Yeah. Above all else, telling people about the show is how we're going to grow the show. Seems like a lot of you have been doing that lately. So thanks. And check out grandamerica.ca slash upgrade. Um, and you're, that's gonna that's where you're going to get your tickets. And grandamerica.ca slash support is where you can sign up for a monthly, uh, new monthly. And, of course, we're giving away magnets for our new monthly subscribers. Yeah. Oh, are you? Yeah. yeah. And if you're an old monthly subscriber and you want a magnet, I'm not going to say no. Just shoot Just me an email. Just send your address, yeah. Yeah. Right on. So I wanted to, I'm going to link to the article that, uh, that I found that uh, weather modification Senate report as well. If people want to dig that up themselves, they can download it and read it themselves. It's pretty, pretty cool. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of people talking about this kind of stuff now is uh, geoengineering, right? And how much that's affecting the weather. So I think it's going to be an interesting couple of years. We need that shit from Mars. You need what from Mars? Geoengineering. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I still don't. Even that shit, I don't think really is a drop in the bucket. What? Geoengineering? Yeah. And its effect. And yeah. The yeah, maybe. grander scheme. Maybe, but the, that's not the point, right? Isn't it? No. Okay. The point is nobody's taking into account well, and they easy, want to charge the easy. slaves. We're so. like pretty well wrapping up. Don't get all fired up. We'll be able to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's about it, buddy. That's it? Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say thanks to uh, James for lunch today. <laughs> thanks, and, buddy. And the technical advice in the studio to show you how to use your mute button. Uh, if you could just show me how to use the mute button, we'd be set. I just think that about wraps it up. Eh? You guys should enjoy the chat with uh, David. Yeah, check out all the links in the show notes and uh, help help uh, help us get a new computer. Yeah, yeah, let's try and sell these tickets in like a week. So all you fuckers, go buy a ticket right now. Grandma will have a link in the show notes. And uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to David for coming on. Big thanks to David. Big thanks to Justin. Sign up for the newsletter. America.ca slash news. Um, enjoy the chat. have uh, David Solomon here. I'm pretty excited about this one. We're going to get pretty deep into NDEs. David has been interested in researching NDEs for, for a long part of his life. And he, he wrote the book just recently. It's coming out called the Dead Saints Chronicles. And it's a Zen journey through the Christian afterlife. And uh, David's a Christian minister. He's also like a leading philosopher and exponent of cosmological mythology, Bible interpretation and prophecy. And uh, as you'll see, it's it's not a a dogmatic look into NDEs, but it's very, very interesting. And we'll talk about, uh, you know, bonsai mastery and, and Zen stuff and coincidences and synchronies and all kinds of, all kinds of good things. So welcome to the show, David. I am so glad to be here. It's good to be on the show. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. I, I was, we, I don't think we've really think done a show John that put us on. Yeah. John Anthony West told, told us about it and we just uh, kind of jumped on it from there. And, and uh, we've been wanting to do a show on NDEs and it's great to have, somebody like yourself to talk to who I didn't even mention in the intro has been faced with your own sort of mortality and you were diagnosed with a pretty uh, dangerous cancer of the brain mm-hmm. not too long ago. Yep. So, I mean, it's, it's just great to have you here to talk about your research and, and NDEs instead of, you know, like just uh, looking at something that's five or 10 years old. So, um, wow, we're really looking forward to it. It's been a journey. What, how did, uh, you know, you've been interested in this stuff. I mean, your book was, I made it about 80, 80% of the way through of it. I, I couldn't quite finish it in time, but you're, I loved how you have uh, been quite disciplined over, you know, journaling and, and you're actually using some of your chronicles in, in your book, which is right. pretty fascinating to me. And I mean, do you want to talk about, I, I usually don't like to start off by just talking about people's history and all, but I think yours is worthy of, of discussing like how, you started the research and then and then sort of over the last few years getting that diagnosis and how that's changed well i think it's important to have a quick you know twenty thousand foot overview just yeah. to have a basis a foundation for what what happened yeah exactly because it has been an evolving experience and and not a static one um you know basically uh you know i left the U.S. Air Force in 1979 uh, as a conscientious objector. And I had, uh, my job was a B-52 gunner. You know, mm. my job was to nuke Russia. The Claxons went and we went to World War III. That was my job. 
And, you know, I was very determined to do that because I always wanted to be an astronaut. And when I didn't <coughs> become an astronaut, I joined the Air Force, and that's, they said, you know, airman, I was going to be an electronics engineer. And they, and they said, do you want to fly? And since I had always wanted to be an astronaut, I raised my hand and said, yes, sir. So I went into the Air Force and uh, found out the reality of nuclear weapons um, and nuclear bombs and killing hundreds of millions of people. And I knew that wasn't my destiny in life. So I went through it the right way, got an honorable discharge. And, you know, my goal in life had always been to be an astronaut. So when that didn't happen and I left the Air Force, I cried out, God, what do you want me to do with my life now? Hmm. This is what I wanted to do my whole life. And uh, it wasn't within but literally two weeks that I ran into um, a gentleman named uh, Paul Solomon, who was known as the second Edgar Casey, And uh, I began uh, traveling with him throughout the world. Now, Paul Solomon was known as, you know, he was also known as a sleeping prophet like Casey and did source readings like Edgar Casey. And um, I, was his, I became his personal apprentice and sort of adopted son for 13 years. Wow. And... And throughout those 13 years, you know, I had chance not to just be with him almost 24 hours a day for 13 years, but he sent me to different various teachers around the world to study with. I studied with Da Lu, a Chinese uh, Tai Chi master in New York City in the early 80s. I was given a course of discipline to study for nearly two years there. Um, speed reading. Um, memorization, you know, everything was designed to, you know, what he called create the mind of Christ, meaning to expand beyond your physical brain to mm -hmm. thinking with a different kind of mind. And that was his purpose. And from there, I was sent to Japan and I studied with um, Ryojo Kikuchi, who was a Thomasan. She was known as the first enlightened Buddhist priestess in Japan in 500 years. Wow. And I, I had the opportunity to live with her in her temple there for off and on over a period of almost two years. And during that time, I also got to study with uh, a renowned world bonsai master, uh, Takunahashi Sensei. So, and he spoke not a word of English. Everything was show, show, show. So I had this intense Zen training um, there in not only bonsai, but Japanese gardening. Um, I also was trained under Felton Jones, who was Paul Solomon's Zen teacher in the early 1980s. So I'd had some exposure to bonsai, but Mr. Takanahashi was in the late 80s when I went to Japan, um, married uh, a Japanese wife, uh, Emiko, who um, helped me through translation and uh, understanding Thomason. She didn't speak a word of English. Um, you know, basically it, it, it all happened over that period of time. And when Paul Solomon died in 1994, um, I was kind of left stranded and, you know, I didn't have any money, didn't know what to do. Um, so what I did was, um, I started a business. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, out of my garage with nothing. And that was in Olympia, Washington. And from there, over a period 
from 1999 to 2010, I built one of the largest payment processing companies in the United States. It was called Fast Transact, and it was acquired in January 2010. Mm -hmm. But really, this is only the beginning of the story, because I took the funds from the sale of the transaction, which was a multi-million dollar transaction, and I started building um, Accio Botanical Gardens in Olympia, mm -hmm. which was a, the largest Japanese garden project in the state. I just don't do anything small. <laughs> uh, you know, we spent over a million dollars on the gardens themselves. You know, my thought was, well, I'm going to build this just like the Japanese gardens are built in Japan. Yeah. And so I had the help, um, coincidentally, of a local Japanese uh, bonsai and landscaping uh, master. Called, his name is Phil Hulbert, who ran Suki Nursery five miles down the road. Um, one of the best nurseries in the state. How coincidental is that, right? You yeah. just close yeah. by. So I spent basically 2010 to 2013 building those gardens. I mean, it looked like I was building a resort. I had underground cable and wiring, and, you know, I really wanted to be in my thought that it would become a um, hospice or near-death sanctuary for those who were passing, and that was my goal, because when you do 13 years of business like I did, or what was it, 10 years of business, you really get tired of business. Yeah. You get sick of it. And when I was an expert in the payment industry, and I'm still consulting in that industry, I still got to make a living. But during that time, my hobby was to research near-death experiences, which started around July 2011. I'd always been interested in the subject. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'd was a metaphysical guy. I was a Christian minister. Mm -hmm. I'd have been ordained in 1983, but I really had dabbled and I hadn't really understood it until I ran into a website called uh, uh, Near Death Research Foundation dot org, mm -hmm. and it was filled with nearly 3,500 near death blogs. And I thought. Well, isn't this nice? I said, I've been buying, I've been, what I was doing was trying to analyze the, uh, the market, what was out there. And I was like shocked about what I read because it was so insufficient. In so, paper, in paper, you mean like the, the stuff paper. Here, so, yeah, yeah. So let me give you a, a small chronological order here because it, it'll make sense. So in July, early July, 2011, I started studying mm -hmm. these, about 50 of these blogs a day, and three months later, I mean, it was really interesting. I was just kind of casually, as a hobby doing it, I thought maybe I would write a book, but I was just literally indexing notes. And on October 5th, about three months later, I was reading one near-death experience of a gentleman named Christopher who had an experience where he was on the operation table under full anesthesia. Mm -hmm. He, was, he had his left lung being removed because he had, like, term, if he didn't remove it, he would die of uh, terminal uh, cancer of the lung. <laughs> so they were doing this operation. In the midst of the operation, this guy starts to speak. And the doctors jumped back because they'd never had anybody do that under full anesthesia. And he started speaking. And then, after a few minutes, he died. Right? Mm -hmm. So the so the doctors are in the corner kind of huddling among themselves, you know, praying for this guy who just like, it was weird because I'll tell you why. 
they were in the corner and they looked back at him and his eyes were staring right at him. And then they said, he's alive. <laughs> and they run over and they sew him up and, you know, they, he didn't die and they got him stable and all the doctors left and one surgeon sat there looking at him and he said, well, you're probably wondering why I'm staring at you. And he said, yeah, doc, you, you want to talk to me about my dying? And he said, well, um, it's, you were having a two-way conversation. Well, with whom? You mentioned the name Jesus Christ by name. So he said, well, well, that's strange. He said, we, don't, we couldn't hear, he said, was I hollering in the void? Well, we couldn't hear the other side of the conversation. We can only hear you. So we're going to put this in your medical records. And so the doctor walked away and Christopher went home. And while I was finishing reading that near-death experience, all of a sudden, it was like I was hit by a bolt of lightning. I literally began laughing hysterically. I didn't even know why. I was just reading this thing, and, and I, I, I was like, oh, my God. It was like this holy presence. I mean, it just shocked me, and I fell on my knees, and I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I didn't know what was going on. I was just literally zapped. And, um, and this went on for about 20 minutes. My wife was in the next room and she said, what's going on? And I, I couldn't even talk. So I went out to the garage, leaned on my hundred thousand dollar GTR <laughs> red. And, you know, I was embarrassed by that later, by the way, I'd, you know, I'd had the money and I bought this great sports car and here I was being zapped by, I could only guess cause I was imagining this guy was talking with Jesus that the Christ come into my living room and touch me. That's what it felt like. And I wasn't imagining it. And I told, I've told everybody, I said, if I'd never read the Bible or even one near-death experience, I know that there is something greater than me because I, I could never have created that. Mm-hmm. So that, that happened just three months after I started my research. So I hadn't got the cancer yet. And so I started... Uh, cataloging things, and I always called it my near-death book. I didn't know what I was going to call it. But, I, you know, for me, I always procrastinate. <laughs> I never get around to finishing things. So um, approximately, well, uh, this was October 2011, around January, um, excuse me, November uh, 2012, I was driving down to the... I always made this trip every day. It was my ritual. I went, I drove five miles down to the 76 station to get my coffee because I could make it any way I wanted with mm-hmm. cream and mix it any way I wanted. They had the best coffee in town. I never went to Starbucks. And um, on the way there, I just had this, like, vision. This, not a vision. It was more like this realization mm-hmm. that the book would be called The Dead Saints Chronicle. Wow. And it was because I had a picture of the Apostle Paul who wrote his letters to the saints throughout Asia. And he would title it, you know, The Saints. And so it occurred to me that these modern near-death experiences were as holy and as powerful as those who had experiences 2,000 years ago, and even of the Apostles. And so I began being the minister I was, began diving into the Bible and looking for 
relevance about those you know, who became apostles and disciples and whether they had near-death experiences uh. and whether their, you know, their enlightenment or their wisdom or their um, capabilities came from such an experience. And one that stood out, of course, is Moses, and who saw light, went to the top of a mountain, that light spoke to him, and he came down with his face lit up, transformed. <laughs> but, but the second most famous is the Apostle Paul himself. Um, most people know that he uh, traveled to Damascus and was knocked off his donkey, right? Saw a great light that blinded him, that spoke to him, and that light said that he was Jesus Christ, and why are you persecuting my people? But we also don't know, he describes in the Bible, about a man of 14 years old who went to heaven and described things unbelievable and sights that are described like those who have died and come back to life, who I call the dead saints. Now, the dead saints is a new classification. I don't mean saints in the way that Mother Teresa is canonized or, or even... Um, saints from other disciplines in Hindu and Buddhism right. who require, you know, life of purity. These are normal people who have died and come back and have these revelations that are as I believe and I uh, theorize are as holy and as sacred as those of the saints. But they're just a different class of saints. They don't consider themselves holy. And each one is different. Each, each one is not exposed to the same amount of light, let's say, as, as all of them. Not all of them are transformed and turned into butterflies. Right. So, you know, that was some of the basis to my research. So that happened, and so I had a title to the book, and I had a thesis, and that was you know, at the end of 2012. Right. So the next part of the story is really becomes interesting, because in January, I had a dream. And I had one other dream I, I can't forget to mention because it's part of the story. And I call, in the first book, uh, chapter one, called Premonitions. But I'll start with this one. This story was my great-great-grandma Miller appeared to me in a dream. And in the dream, I thought I died and went to heaven. And I was standing on this death ferry. And it was like a... New York City bus, but it was a ferry traveling over waters to the hereafter, the other side. And I was standing at the back of this death ferry, and in the front was my great-grandma Miller. And she was standing, and I was standing, and everybody on the bus was dead, and, but they didn't really know they were dead. They had transitioned to that reality kind of like in a daze, not quite knowing where they were. But I was aware, and looking at the front of the bus, and I know that woman. She was beautiful with this glow around her, blue eyes. And I said to her, I've died, haven't I? <laughs> and she said, she nodded at me. I can confirm it. And, I, and, I, and it was, she said, yes, basically, mentally, telepathically. And I said, oh, well, that's okay. And I knew it. And then I woke up. And that happened in January uh, 2013, about six months before I got my cancer. So fast forward to mid-May, just before, about six weeks before I got my cancer, actually about a month, and I had this realization in my spa room and my property, there were my Accio Botanical Gardens, we had a 
spectacular kind of sauna room and saw you know where we did baths and we had a sound relaxation table and it was our fun room as well and mm-hmm. I literally sank to my knees and I said I knew I was going to die I had this this absolute feeling I'm going to die and it wasn't going to be long and I said God if you're going to take me give me three years so I could see my daughter graduate and that was in May 2013. Wow. My daughter will graduate in June 2016. So what happened was a series of quick events. Three weeks later, um, I began to get dizzy. On June 10th, I told my wife, I said, I'm feeling this dizziness. Maybe I got an ear infection. You know, you don't think anything about it. And I really didn't even think about the dream six months before. You know, when you have these things, you don't think, oh, I'm going to really die, right? Yeah. It was a real dream, but I dismissed it. So I had this this premonition that I would, and I said, give me three years. And then, okay. So that was June 10th. Then on June 12th, two days later, I get a call from a friend who had cancer, who was dying of cancer. We hadn't talked for a year. We actually had gotten into an argument about money or something and, you know, basically had not talked to each other. But he called out of the blue the evening before I found out I had my cancer. Wow. And he called me and said, David, are you all right? I had a dream that you were in trouble. I said, not really. I think I'm fine. I have a little ear infection maybe, but I appreciate you calling. He said, David, I forgive you. And I said... John, I'm so sorry. I forgive you, sir. Please be well. Well, John died six months later. So the next day, on June 13th, I said, you know, something's wrong, Glenn. My wife named Glenn. I said, something's wrong. That, that, we should get this checked out. So I called a doctor friend and described my symptoms because I was beginning to feel... Um, on the 12th, I actually, you know, I was feeling nauseous, and I had gotten sick. And I thought, what is going on? I feel like my legs are disconnected from my body. It's more than an ear infection. So go up to the VA hospital in Seattle. So I did that afternoon on the 13th. So I go in. They do all these tests for stroke and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, um, after three hours, you know, Mr. Solomon, we're going to just do a CAT scan. An hour later, they come back. She closes the curtains. You know what that means when they close the curtains. And said, Mr. Solomon, she turns on her CAT scan. She shows me this one-inch tumor. We found a mass in your brain. And literally, we think we don't know what it is, but literally three weeks later, it was confirmed to be glioblastoma uh, multiforme 4, which is one of the most lethal brain cancers you can get. Mm-hmm. Your life expectancy is 15 months at most, maybe 18 months. They do. The, they do. They have no treatment. Um, my wife's mother, Barbara, died of the same cancer at 15 months. Ted Kennedy died of the same cancer in 15 months. The vice president's son, Blow, died around 15, 18 months. Some die much sooner. But I had spent, you know, uh, two years researching near-death experiences on the uh, Jeffrey Long near-death site and had studied, you know, not only theirs, but those from other 
well-known near-death site. So I had over 5,000 experiences, some personal interviews, and I was just finishing these things up when I was given the news that I had this cancer. I literally was a week away from finishing. And how weird is that? So here I am in the hospital on July 1st, and I'm being confirmed that I am going to die in 15 months or so. It really shakes you up. I don't yeah. care how spiritual you are. That catastrophic news shakes you to the soul. And what's funny is when I found out about the cancer, my son was ready to leave on a flight to Tennessee to have his first real job. And he literally was two hours away from getting on the plane. And when I called him, I said, Ben, you know, you probably might want to not go. Um, so he stayed and, you know, so this part of the journey began. So I began writing with this mission from blues vigor. Well, I guess I have no reason to procrastinate now. Right. So that's how this part of the story. So I'll stop there. That kind of gives you a preface. Yeah. Wow. No, it's close to me. I had my, my dad, uh, <clears throat> had a brain tumor as well as my aunt. So it's uh, yeah, we had to go through that with uh, with both of them as well. So I understand what you, what you're going through to a certain extent. So, so it you've was been a catalyst. It was it was a catalyst for everything that happened in yeah. the book, and that's what's the exciting part. Yeah, because that's been what, two years now, I guess. Right? Actually, well, just about um, just about no three. It, well, the book is it's been uh, 33 months. Yeah, the release wow. will be 33 months after I found out about the cancer. Wow. So I'm supposed to only live 15 months, and here I am at 33 months. Right. And how are you, how are you feeling these days? Well, the way it's gone, um, and we'll weave this into the, your talk, um, I'm, I'm fine. My, you can tell them I think my mind's sharp, and it has been, and I think it will be. Yeah. Um, you know, they were, you know, they give you certain treatment. You know, immediately they put me on what's called Timidor, um, and we had initially the, actually the, this is a bit of a story, because from July 1st, September 15th, you know, I had to make a decision because most most of these brain tumors are scooped out, resected. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the um, problem is if they can't get 95% or 80% or more of the tumor, it's just going to come right back. Yeah. So for me, mine was in a location in the motor right, you know, left brain tumor, which would affect my right side of my body. The doctor told me that, well, we can do the surgery but there's an 80% chance that your left, your right leg will just drag and you'll be in a wheelchair the rest of your life. Yeah. So I really debated with friends and family, you know, during those two months, what do I do? What do I do? Um, do I go to the reception? We went to a couple of tumor boards and they universally, they said, David, if you're going to write a book and retain, because you know, I kind of, you know, kind of lost the use of my right hand as well. I said, you know, I can type 80, 100 words a minute. I won't be able to type. I won't be able to write this book if I take that risk. And then we literally got down to the wire of 18 hours before the surgery on August 1st. And I met with uh, a doctor there, and I asked her. I said, Doctor, would you do this surgery, knowing my situation? She didn't hesitate. She said, No, Mr. Solomon, I would not. Wow. Go immediately into chemo and radiation, and let's see what happens. Because we could scoop this thing out, love using that word because of what it looked like, 
um, we could take this thing out, but um, it could grow back in 30 days, and you'd be in the same situation. Yeah. Because these tumors can grow that fast. So I immediately went into 33 radiation treatments, which required the lint to drive the hour from Olympia to Seattle, excuse me, um, five days a week, mm-hmm. up and back, up and back, up and back, and then two days rest, and then five days a week, and then concurrently do the uh, chemo, which was not intravenous, but it was, you know, five pills you took uh, for five days and, you know, started at the beginning of the month, and then you do it all over again, and I did that. For 12 months and it worked um, my tumor went from 20 millimeters over a period of a year to about three millimeters slowly slowly and it looked like gosh we're defeating this thing we're defeating this ugly cancer which everybody wants to call a monster um, you remember the story about Brittany Menard last year who ended up doing the uh, death with dignity suicide basically um, because she had glioblastoma cancer. Oh, right. No, I don't. I don't remember it actually. It was a national debate. You know, again, which states have the right to allow you to take the poison pill, basically, to end mm-hmm. your life if you have a lethal, catastrophic disease. Right. And so, you know, it became a big discussion among the country. And you know, I'm never going to consider that. But you know, it was a big discussion because she was having two seizures a day, falling flat on her face, and she was tired of it. Yeah. And and then the, on November third, no, no, excuse me, November fourth, or third, first, November first, two thousand fourteen, ending her life with right. her family around her. So, anyway, um, so things are going along uh, for me, you know, uh, until two thousand November two thousand thirteen. I'd done the chemo and radiation, and um, we were in financial trouble. I'd made. A bunch of money selling my company. Yeah, but I put I would probably say half a, or three quarters of my money into my house and my property because I wanted to build these beautiful gardens. But then um, um, everything basically went downhill, and we decided um, don't invest in gold stock during that time. By the way, that was one problem. Yeah, uh, but. Um, we decided to sell our property there and move uh, on November 12th to Virginia Beach where I'd grown up and graduated in high school. Um, my children, uh, Angela and Ben, ended up following me. Uh, ben, three months later, and my daughter, some six months later. Um, so it was a good move, kind of scary, um, but, you know, I basically lost everything financially. Yeah. So. Wow. Did you did you end up working on your book throughout that whole healing journey? Partially, you know, it was it was hard because when you're on, you know, I lost all my hair by November. You know, a few months after my radiation, um, I was sick. I was tired, fatigued, yeah, probably yeah. partially depressed. Yeah, yeah. You know, writing's hard anyway, much less going through what I call brain fog. Yeah. So I began. You know, I had these handwritten journal notes, which is. You know, I was writing down every day my thoughts, what I was feeling it. You know, for the first two weeks of chemo, I called it climbing out of my sarcophagus <laughs> because it felt like, um, you know, that I died. And I, and it was hard to write and do anything. So, you know, by the time May 2000, April 2014 came around, I said, I need help. So I called John Anthony West, 
you know, and, and the reason that came up was um, we were on, a, you know, I had actually it occurred before then, um, excuse me, it actually occurred in the summer of 2013 before I left because, you know, the decision about taking out my tumor, you know, I had thought, what am I going to do if I, can, if I do decide to take it out and I can't walk? And I thought, well, my bucket list is I want to go to Yellowstone National Park and do the rapids and see the Tetons. And so I went there and with uh, like seven teenagers or six teenagers, and <laughs> we had a great four days. We did river rafting, and on the way back from that trip, I thought, you know, who's, who can help me write this book? And um, I thought all of a sudden, John Anthony West, my good friend. You know, we had been friends gone on two Egypt trips together, um, and uh, later I helped him fund his uh, Gobekli Tepe research in Turkey with, with Dr. Shock mm-hmm. when I still had money. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and um, so, yeah, he agreed. He had just gotten off working with Gerald Salente. And so that's how that happened. So, but I hadn't, <coughs> he agreed to it, but we didn't really do much until April of uh, 2014. And that's when the writing began in more earnest. So did you have to, I don't know, like reassess your spirituality or your religion, or did that change uh, your personal, um, I mean, that's a hard thing to go through. And you've been looking at all these different, different views of, you know, the afterlife and NDEs. Like, how did that affect you personally? A great deal. And, you know, I, I've, I've recently told friends and my family, I said, you know, I learned a lot being with spiritual teachers all those years, yeah. you know, with Thomason and Dalu and Paul, you know, I learned a great deal and it kind of gets absorbed into you, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not what transforms you. You know, you read your Bible, you're faithful, you believe all these things and it affects some more than others. You know, the, you know, what, what they call the born again experience. I never really had one. I was baptized, but I didn't go through this experience like this, this emotional catharsis, mm-hmm. which, you know, some Christians describe, you know, others describe it slowly. Mine was kind of slow like that. So for me, you know, when I left the ministry in 1994 to start business, I felt like I literally walked away from everything spiritual, everything. Mm-hmm. Being a co-pastor at the church, um, I didn't want to hear another word about spiritual things ever. Again, I was done. When you been immersed in it as much as I was. This wasn't just part-time. This was full-time. You know, and I always asked, I said, you know, God, if, if you're really out there, like, you got to say something. Like, you know, like, Saul, blow me off a camel, blow me, blow me off a donkey, hit me with the light. You know, I know a lot of you, us listening, may be that intent about knowing God and like, where are you? I mean, I believe in you, and I mean, I have dreams about you, and I've had experiences, but I want, I want something <laughs> dramatic to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, convince me. Something, you know, I've even been to laying on of hands. I can feel the spirit, this holiness, people laughing and crying. It's all good. I love it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But I want something to happen to me. I want to have this light hit me transform me, that kind of thing. So 
that that saint's experiences, however, became that kind of revolutionary, transforming experience for me. Because when the Christ hit me in my living room, I knew there was something to this. Mm -hmm. Now I've got hit. Yeah. Now I had one minor experience in '81. I, I I talk about in the book, but this one really did knock me off my horse, my yeah. donkey, my camel. And um, so, when you talk about stages, this was still in stages, because the one experience wears off, and that's what the dead saints, you know, when they get this encounter, this face-to-face -face encounter with the being of light beings of light, their dead grandmother, their dead grandfather, or even realize when they first get out of the body and they look down and they said, I'm alive, I'm still alive. There's this joy and this peace and this realization, I will never die. Yeah. Death yeah. is not real. Yeah. yeah. So and that, that's, that's part of it. And, and that gets us into the NDE. So for people that have heard the term, but they don't really know, you know what it means or what our cultural opinion is on that. Can you explain like in general what the NDEs are and then also how you've sort of broken it down a little bit deeper? Cause I've always thought it was a silly name for it a near death experience because a lot of it is trying to talk about people that have actually died. So it's almost like a certain right. death experience. Correct. And there's, I described, you know, seven triggers to dying and, and there are seven different types of dying and not all of them are, you know, harm the physical, physical body. Yeah. You know, so there are four, you know, three that, you know, are death, meaning they're dead. They're recorded as dead, dead being for three minutes, one minute, eight minutes, 30 minutes, sometimes up to three hours right. dead. Yeah. You know, of course, the story of Lazarus, three days dead. Um, so we have those, and those are considered the most authoritative. They're not necessarily the most authoritative. Right. There are those that are in coma. Um, there are those who are, you know, what's have, um, uh, lesser, what's called shared death experiences where they actually see friends die, like during an air mid airplane accident and two or three people die and they actually are talking to them on the way down from the plane to the ground. And, you know, one saying, I got to go, it's my time. And the other, you know, wants to go with them, but they can't there. It's not their time right. to leave. So there are those. And then there's four other types of near-death experiences where, you know, where people have a, what's called a fear-death experience where they literally think they're going to die. They're, their car's headed right at them, and they, they know their time is done. And at the last second, they swerve off the road, and all of a sudden they're alive. But they have an out-of-body experience. They review their life. There's a, they can have all this in seconds and have the same phenomena happen as if they were a person who were in a head-on collision. So that's a fear death. Um, um, I described multiple deaths. There's a shared death experience, which is, again, a non-injury accident where people are in a living room, grandma's dying, and all of a sudden their spirits are lifted out of their bodies, and as grandma rises through the house, they go with them. <laughs> and they experience what grandma experiences as she enters the light, but they're not allowed to enter the light and enter the gates through the gates of heaven, and they and they return. There, there's a book written by um, Dr. Moody about shared death experiences that everybody should look at. He made the whole book focused on that, and these are normal people, doctors, 
who were shocked to have such an experience because they didn't believe in them, but, you know, they had it anyway. What um, percentage sec- do you think it comes down to of people that are capable of having them? It almost people seems like sometimes, or... like, it, no, just like NDE capable. Like, is it something everyone's well, right going to happen? If have, like, if me and Greg, like, is it, what's the number? Like, is it, it the, the number, seems like the, it, right now, the numbers are about um, 20% of the world's population has had some form of one of these seven types of near death experiences. The okay. mystical death, shared death. Yeah, it's 20%. And, and that's and, probably, I mean, when you scale that up, that's probably. You know, you're probably only looking at, I would say, can't be much more than that percentage of the population that have even been in that situation. Or which situation particularly? In a well, near-death in, in any of them, right? In any of those seven yeah, things. Right. Like, it's, it's got, it can't be, it's got to be less than half. I would say less than one-third of the population has even been in a situation where they, they could encounter one of those seven things. Well, some of them are happening in dreams while they sleep. Um, it doesn't have to be a catastrophic situation. So, you know, Dr. Uh, uh, Lommel uh, wrote a, a great book on uh, Beyond um, Consciousness that describes these numbers very well, um, where 4.2% of the American population has had invalid near-death experiences. And 50% are not reported because people think they're going to be labeled crazy. Yeah, yeah. So I would so say it's, it's that... Quite they, enough, so it's estimated that 12 million people in the U.S. alone um, have had you know, some form of one of these seven types of near-death experiences. So I would say it's almost... I would say it's something like my interpretation would be that almost anybody could have it. There's nothing yeah, like, you know what I mean? Could. Like everyone has the ability to have it. It's just a matter of if they get themselves into that situation. That's right. And, it, and it, you never know what sets it off. Like my situation in my living room, I, I, you don't know what triggers it. It, it, it just happens. A lot of, you know, 10% of heart surgeries have near-death experiences. Right. And it's not, it's not uh, dependent on belief systems or cultural upbringing or anything like that, is it? No, it's not. It's, it's equal across the board, children, adults of every faith, believers, non-believers. It doesn't right. matter whether you're an atheist or agnostic. And the cool thing is, if an atheist or agnostic has this experience, 95% of them come back believing that there's life after death and that there is a creator or a Jesus or a being of light. Yeah. The thing that, that bugs me is is the skeptics seem to just slough this off because, uh, oh, they, their big argument is, that, oh, maybe you weren't quite dead yet or there was some sort of activity in the brain, and that yet... They seem to discount all the high strangeness involved, uh, people that see things uh, while they're out of body and all these other, you know, events that are proving their consciousness or at least helping prove the consciousness is not just residing in our brain. That's right. And, you know, they're, my, the, the focus of my book, what makes it very unique is that I took the time to index and connect the, the stories rather than in a scientific format in an anecdotal format to prove one thing. All you got to do is prove there's one white crow. One. Yeah. yeah. Not, and that all crows are not black. Yeah. Just one. And that's all it takes. And, and that's, the, that's a paradigm shift because you can only deny it so long. Um, you know, as John Anthony West writes in my afterword in my book, you know, the paradigm police who are monitoring these things to debunk them, 
you know, they're kind of waiting to pounce on me, right? And this, he said, this is one of these books that will make it very difficult for them, even though I'm using anecdotal evidence, which is quasi-scientific. But when you have enough of it, combined with the fact that I myself am dying, yeah. and, and things are starting to happen. I've had um, literally 11 visits from deceased friends to look, give me short quips about what I need to do. Wow. Um, and these are not long dialogues. These are just little, like, helpful hints because there's kind of a hereafter um, non-interference clause. Uh, that's what I call it. And it appears very true. You know, they don't want to distract you from what you're doing, but they want to support you. Um, you know, and I can have a list. I'm my, two of my bonsai teachers, Elton Jones and Takanahashi, have visited me. Takanahashi has visited me twice. And he actually gave me some practical advice. And that's how chapter three of the book starts. You know, said basically, David, you have a, too large of a book. You need to divide it in two. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he became not only my former bonsai sensei, but he became chief editor. <laughs> so um, it's kind of funny, but it's true. So, you know, that's why, you know, I had, we had huge decisions to make in this research and dividing it up. So literally, book one is then Journey to the craft, uh, Afterlife of the Chronicles. The second book uh, is The Training Wires of the Soul, which is more of my autobiography, my cancer journey, and it's filled with tons of my journal notes from my written hand journals, whereas the first book has maybe 40 or 50 of these chronicle notes, yeah. which are really interesting by themselves. But the second book, is almost more interesting because it's it's the story what I call you know you know as a afterlife journalist and you know reporting live from the afterlife foxhole basically and things are beginning to happen so quickly in the last three months that it's almost difficult to keep up with and so the second book is pretty much done. My wife Delenn will be co-author of the uh, training wires of the soul, which continues, you know, the Zen bonsai Christian viewpoint. And my challenge always was, I, as a kid, I always wanted to, you know, I, I was very strong in my beliefs about Christ as a kid. I'd had dreams about what, you know, I had a dream of what God looked like, and he looked like, actually, I found out later, like the Shroud of Turin image. When I was 12, um, and then later I had, you know, a new scanner in book one about him coming to me when I was 16, when I had my own near death experience. Um, um, I had a friend do a chokehold on me. And oh, my yeah, best I wanted to ask that. about that. Yeah. We, we used to do yeah, that. He, we used to do that in school as well. Like do that uh, hyperventilation stuff. Yeah. We, I <laughs> did it sweaters. with uh, hashish. I did it with hashish, not just hyperventilating, but we took a, you know, you know, doses, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right. I'm saying it on the air here, but that's what happened. And I literally fell on the floor and died for about a minute. Wow. My eyes rolled up wow. in the head, and I shook, and I stopped breathing. And I woke up about uh, I don't, you know, my sister guessed I was out. She said about a minute, maybe two minutes, stopped breathing, um, and then I took a big breath of air and woke up absolutely frightened, frightened out of my wits. 
Um, I didn't know what happened. I knew I had died, but my and my heart had stopped. Right. That's a bad and first somehow experience. Somehow, I came back, and so that was only part of the near death experience because, you know, I saw myself do. You know, you go through a step by step process typically, which is chapter thirteen of my book. You know, I reiterate all the steps of dying, and um, so I I actually saw myself riding a, a red tricycle as a kid. And that's all I saw. Um, I asked my mom, did I have a red tricycle as a kid? She certainly did. <laughs> but that's all I remembered. But about a week or two later, um, I, um, I had a dream, a remarkable dream, that I went up into this high-rise hotel. Inside the elevator were these flat screen TVs, which didn't exist yet. And I got off the elevator, and this bellman met me and took me to this place, which was near my house. I, went, I don't know how I got from the elevator to my house, but the sun was rising, and I was just standing there in this street near a backyard, and all of a sudden the sun it was morning, and the sun came out of the sky, and all of a sudden the sun became Jesus Christ and stood in front of me, and I knew it, and I literally fell down on my face like I was dead, and I was, like, prostrating before him, and he was talking to me, and there was this young lady next to me, and I don't know who she was. She was there as well. And he was telling me something about a mission that I had to do. And, you know, and that's part of the near-death experience because those who are sent back always have a mission. They got something they have to do. That's why they go back. Mm. So, you know, I had all like seven elements or what I call death elements of a near-death experience. So I was remembering what had happened when I had died a couple of weeks before. Uh-huh. So I never told my minister about it because I didn't want to tell them, hey, I'd smoke some matches. You know, back then, you know, the churches didn't talk about that thing kind of thing. So, you know, I kind of just kept it to myself, and it, it kind of began my journey and my thinking. So by the time I joined the Air Force, you know, I went to the ARE, the Edgar Casey Foundation. I actually took a course in parapsychology, got an elective and made great grades on that. Um, and of course went into the Air Force at 18, got out as a conscientious objector, and then found Paul Solomon, and that connects that part of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, so that it's a long set of uh, circumstances and a lot more details. You know, it's a it's it's a, it's a exhaustive book, but it's what did someone say? They called it a stunning lens that magnifies, you know, these these stories in a way that's never been done because typically it's kind of boring. You know, they did great research, but they didn't, they don't really tell a story. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, they're all good. They're, I'm not, you know, everyone typically the books that have come out that have sold millions of copies are usually one person's experience and a story before and after, um, where we have 5,000 experiences studied and we have 300 that I focus on, that tell a story of each part of the near-death experience, and with and with my background, and with my dying experience, you know, and some realizations I started to get, and that's the important part, I think, of our show is, you know, once I got further down the road, I told my wife, I said, you know, I've learned a lot in those first, you know, 54 years of my life, but when I started reading these near-death experiences, I was able to connect dots that all these wise teachers 
gave me, but I didn't really understand. Yeah. And so those thoughts began connecting. And then, you know, there was, you know, I said, I learned more and more and more as each month I had these realizations come about the Bible, the meaning of some things about other religions. And, and I started understanding more and more, but as, as these last six months of putting the Chronicles together, strange things started happening, gentlemen. I'm just telling you, I, I didn't understand it. Yeah. So, and we'll get to that later because I want to save that to last. Okay. I wanted to ask you about, uh, obviously you're coming at this from a Christian viewpoint. Um, you yeah, had men- not just Christian, it's, it's, it's both and. Okay, um, the yeah, first yeah, so. eight, The first eight chapters really are more um, zen. Yeah. You know, I, I have a chapter on, you know, uh, it's, Death is a Lie Humans Tell Themselves. It's a great title. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Earth University chapter, and Rice Paper Teachers. Earth University, and, yeah. you know, Dreams, you know, Night School, uh, We Die in Character. And people, what is that? That's a very important chapter. You know, The Judgment and the Life Review. And that's the first section called Nabari, which is what my bonsai teacher told me to call it. Yeah. Nabari means roots, like the roots you see on a bonsai tree. Yeah. It's what, you know, this is the root of the book. Now let's move on to the second part, which is, you know, all about near-death experiences. And then the third part, which I find is really interesting, is, you know, the first chapter is called... Um, I'm drawing a blank. The governing laws of religion are not absolute. Yeah, the governing laws of religion are not absolute. Yeah, that was that was a, had, that was a very interesting chapter for me. That that is a defining chapter. I had I was falling asleep, and those words came to me. I didn't make them up. I did, it's like I I'm not smart enough to make a title like that. That was <laughs> no, really. It was just that was a brilliant title. That was not me. I think so that's what became, Darren. I think that's probably what Darren was was getting at that chapter, probably about the Christian, you know, your Christian influence, right, Darren? And and yeah, I was just wondering where you think that falls in with um, with the afterlife and with say where the if everyone's having the same experiences, are we all going to the same place? Is there really a is there an alternative? Like, is there a heaven and there a, is there a hell, or is it more like we all just go back to the bus stop and wait for the next bus? <laughs> Well, that's, this is where the, you know, of course, you know, we're talking about the latter chapters in the book. So, you know, chapter 20 is, was my thesis. It's, what I, it's the chapter I most wanted to write. Okay. It's the chapter that meant the most to me. Right. Because, you know, I, I, it, it's the most scholarly chapter, I think you see, or saw. Yeah. And it's the one I put the most time into. And because I felt that... It, it was the one that would define religion and what religion and what God is yeah. from the dead saints' point of view. Yeah. Um, and from history, because we look at the Old Testament, because, you know, when we look at our Bible and how it evolved, it's really interesting. And I tell that story in that chapter, um, how the Septuagint, the Greek version became the English version and how accurate the old testament was translated they they tested every word carefully when it came to the new testament it's a whole different story right so the new testament doesn't have that test word for word they have 200,000 documents they 
compare to each other, but still, those documents, the earliest of them, actually are the Gospel of Thomas, which is not canonized in the Bible. That document goes back to about 120 A.D. to 150 A.D., whereas the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really the most recent documents we have around 200 A.D. to 220 A.D., so basically, they were copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Yeah. And none of them, rarely, are the same. And you have your early church fathers that argued extensively, like, what the heck are these scribes doing? You know, basically, you know, they, they don't have enough candlelight. What's going on? <laughs> there's stuff missing. There's stuff inputted. Now, most modern theologians will say the differences are minor, and they are. You know, we have what are estimated by the gentleman, um, um, Bart uh, Ehrman, who wrote Misquoting Jesus. Um, you know, there are 200 to 400,000 variations of the New Testament. Almost as, any, as many words as in the New Testament. So, you know, the question and the challenge is, you know, we always hear that the Bible is in error, that is, is without error. And, you know, and that's the challenge, because I make a statement in there, you know, where do we stop with, you know, we start doubting the words, where do we stop? Mm -hmm. Right? You know, we start doubting this, start doubting that, and then we start doubting the whole thing, which is not the point. I mean, the Bible is sufficient, in the sense that saints say it is sufficient, but the problem is the interpretation that has given it. And even if there are minor variations and, you know, descriptions of theology that define the Son of God as the Son of God, or the Son of God was God, or the Son of God as a Trinity God, those things really are not important. Um, what seems to be important is that you read the Bible in the spirit of truth. And that's why I use the dead saints reports as a backboard to sound it's like a Talmud in, in a Jewish religion where they have commentary. The dead saints are commentaries about the Word of God. And, and I, it really and it really, really helps because if we understand their comments about abortion, about suicide, about divorce, love. things make a lot more sense. Isn't love a common theme between you know, all different faiths when they have these experiences, the unconditional love, love, like God being more about unconditional love than any other kind of... 100%, and that's where the last chapter, uh, the 13th path, uh -huh. love and, about love and forgiveness, is the bottom line. Love, unconditional love, is the only thing that matters. So, you know, we have these 12-year-olds and 17-year-olds saying, you know, they're having a conversation with Jesus or with God, and, and, and they would say, well, which faith is the right faith? Which religion is the right religion? And Christ would respond, or God would respond, or the being of light would respond and say, it's, what, it's what's in their hearts that determines their heaven or their hell. Yeah, very non-dogmatic, right? Just very of... non. Heaven is not a place occupied solely by the saved. It's occupied by the unsaved and the unbaptized. So, you know, the question becomes, and I had written this in chapter 23 at the very end, 
there's a little subheading called Salvation and Grace. And I had written a letter to Billy Graham when I was 13 years old. And I said, you know, what about the young man in Africa who does exactly what Christ asked us to do, to love one another, to be good, to, to, do, uh, to be a loving, forgiving person? What happens to them when they die? And I got a, basically a form letter back that you, you're not saved by your good works alone. Right. Because we, we have original sin, and because we have original sin, that, our, that we have to be lifted up and saved by Jesus Christ to be able to enter the gates of heaven. That's the traditional Christian response. That's why, that's why evangelical Christians want to save you because of that determination. So how do we resolve that? Do, do 4.8 billion other non-believers, people of other faiths, who it wasn't their fault they were born into Christian faith, so why should they get the wrath of God, right? Go to hell. Those were the, those were these questions that I, I wanted to answer. And when I got back that letter, it really sent me on a path when I was 13 to figure this out. It was like this mission ahead. I'm going to figure this out. There's something right wrong. A loving God would not do this. Yeah. Something's being misinterpreted. Hmm. So, go ahead. No, well, it didn't really, does it not matter then what your faith is? Like, let's say that there's a, I don't know whether a atheist or agnostic or just some spiritual person has a near-death experience. They may see Jesus or they may not, or they may interpret it that way, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, that whatever cultural background you have, um, indicates what kind of experience you're going to have, does it? No. Well, it typically, any near-death experience filters through the human mind and your experience when you come back. So if you were Christian or deeply Christian, even if you're a young man, four years old, it's still going to affect your interpretation of what you see in the afterlife. It doesn't mean the afterlife is a hallucination. It just means you're going to define it and describe it based on your beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's 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 been determined. For instance, if you're from if you're a Buddhist or you're from Thailand, they they typically don't see a Jesus. It happens now and then. Okay, yeah. They see they see a being of light, or they see they may see Buddha uh, at the personification of the Creator. But um, there are some you know I record some really unique instances where a Muslim, for instance, who was in jail. I mean, we're talking a, guy, a terrorist, basically, was in jail. Uh, he was trying to smuggle 300 passports across the border. And he was in jail, and he was in there a long time, and then he starts praying, you know, God, if you're real, I need your help. And he prayed for two weeks with all his heart and all his mind. And all of a sudden, this being appears to him, and he asked, and he was frightened. He applied all of his... Islamic prayers to um, dispel this being because he didn't know who he was or what it was. And he, he uh, it went away, and then he came back, and he said, Who are you? And this being said in his mind, I am Jesus Christ. Hmm. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. Wow. And so... It, he literally, when he heard that and saw him, he fell down on his feet, like I did when I was sick, literally fell down flat on his face. 
it transformed his life. And it's a dramatic story I tell in the very last chapter, but it's a dramatic experience. And it happens from time to time. And the point, the point of telling the story is your religion does not determine your relationship with that being of light. Right. It doesn't, that's the point. You can be of any faith. And, you know, many Christians may have faith in Christ, and that's good. But to have a knowing about Christ is a different thing. And that's one of the, the major points. You know, I call it near-death lightning. Um, some call it the Holy Spirit. You know, for me, it does, you don't have to make it religious. It's an experience. Yeah. So, so this, this, the resolution, the resolution of salvation and grace, and what happens to the 4.8 billion other people who are not Christians? I had a dream, and that's part of the Journal Chronicles. Um, you know, I had a dream of this mansion that covered the earth, and that mansion um, was called Salvation Mansion, and that everybody's invited to the party, everyone, automatically. You don't have to be a Christian. You're invited. You're there. And the dream was that the mansion had seven levels, and everybody's dancing in the ballroom and having fun, and the point of the dream was um, that there's an elevator at the back of the mansion that goes up seven levels. Everyone who is good, who is good and has done good in, on the world, will go to the first level of heaven. Meaning, they're going to go to heaven, but there are different heavens. And those who go through well, what's, you know, what I call uh, an experience with the living one, the source of life, the creator, what might be called, you know, the salvation experience where their sins are forgiven. And that's described by the dead saints, this process of forgiveness, yeah. where black marks are taken from the soul that are erased. That's really true, actually. Um, and that when that happens, you can go to the higher heavens. That's what the elevator's for. But most people don't. But it doesn't mean 4.8 other billion non-Christians are not going to go to hell. Right? Right, right. It just means they go to a different heaven. And that heaven is good. It's a good place. But then the question is, well, what happens to all the bad guys? <laughs> well, they go through the, the negative life review problem, probably, right? Like, how much of this, this so it's what really like happens to you in an NDE? The review NDE? process just takes longer if you're a dick. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you're a dick, it takes... Well, what happens often is when you get out of the body, guess what? You're not thinking with your human brain anymore. You have a mind that thinks 10 times faster that is aware. Right. They know what's going on and they know they did wrong. So what so happens is they, they, you know, you, to, to get what's called the, when I write in the book, the, this new body of light, this immortal body, rather than wearing the personality that you had on earth, you have to go through the life review and judgment. Not a judgment by God. It's a judgment by yourself. Yeah. With God standing there and typically a council of seven or 12 uh, counselors that are sitting there asking you questions like, why did you, like, scratch that car? Uh, why did you pull that cat's tail? Why did you not respond 
why did you pull that ponytail? Why did you step over the person lying in the middle of the street? Why did you make you fun of your co-host across yeah. the studio? You know how, how yeah, it works? Right. The guy why who's did... a dick is the guy who ends up with that job. <laughs> That's you right. sit there you know, all so they, day they really ask running not the down big the list. Stuff. It's not the big stuff. It's all the little things you overlook, the, the opportunities that you let go by. And it's not there to condemn you, but they're asking you because these are the these little foxes, these little things are what are important. So, you know, it's it's both sides. Remember all the good things you've done, all the wonderful things, and they see literally the ripple effects, not from just from your point of view, but if you hurt somebody, kill somebody, blow their head off, guess what? You see it from their eyes. You experience it from their side. So is that and hell? all the ripple effects? Is that hell then? Like, is that heaven and hell right there? The this life review, hell. the judge, the life review and judgment. It's if you're not really, it's, I wouldn't describe it as they describe it. It's not hell. It's the cause and effect. You know, if you have the courage to go through the life review and judgment, you get to pass on. You're going to go on. Now, most of those who are were bad and did a lot of bad things, typically, this is true through their own remorse, resign themselves to these lower, darker realms. It's not forever, but they, they know what they did. No one has to tell them they did bad. So they resign themselves there, and typically, you know, they line up to go there. And some are actually sent back to the earth immediately and are born again. They have these sad faces, like, you know, the part of the book is about Earth is a university where we have classes and tests almost every day. And, you know, a lot of people, if they don't realize that they have been in classes and they screw up, miss the lessons, and do a lot of things that are not good for the Earth and the people, they are marched right back to being born again and have to do the classes all over again. So is that where re reincarnation fits in? Absolutely. So is reincarnation, Some, you only have to do reincarnation? Or is, I mean, is the process that, I mean, tough to really, I mean, I guess how the Buddhists look at it is you need so many lifetimes before you can reach nirvana. Is that the same sort of idea with reincarnation? Or is just being a good Christian good enough to just do it one time? I think it could be one time. and But it is, again, it's still the laws of cause and effect are to apply. You know, Christ can wipe away the karma side of the equation. Um, I don't think we all understand that equation enough to know that it means you'll never come back yeah. and that once you die, you enter the realms of eternal life. You know, separate immortality from eternal life, meaning that you're done. You know, even the book of Revelation describes it very well that, you know, I describe in chapter um, 22 you know, an uncomfortable possibility, which is the discussion about reincarnation. And I talk about, you know, tabula rasa, which is, do we start with a clean slate? But how do you explain people like Mozart, who come in at two years old and can play the piano? But at the end of the chapter, I show this, the, this Gnostic idea of the Ouroboros, and I talk about the Garden of Eden and why we were kicked out of the original garden, which is really the discussion of original sin, that we decided a long time ago, how many eons ago, that we wanted to play with mortality. And when we started to play with mortality, we left our original home, and we were born into 
basically humans, animals, and we had to die to be released from that human form. Um, and it's described by the Gnostics as an Ouroboros, where the snake is swallowing its tail, and so thus the story in the Garden of Eden about the serpent. And um, that, that is a curse. That To get out of that curse, what is the solution? And that's the story of the 13th path in the last chapter. And it's a story where, you know, I describe these Earth University lessons as 12 pillars, you know, which you see throughout the Bible as 12 apostles, 12 sons of Jacob. You know, you have the 12 fruits in the Tree of Life. You have the, you know, the 12 doors in the city of Jerusalem. It's describing the same thing over and over again, the 12 constellations, yeah. you know, and so on. So, but there's this 13th path which is the center pillar, which is represented by Christ. And, and so the dilemma, the paradox that many spiritual people have is that you know, Christ is, was a theory, basically, a metaphor for a state of consciousness that we all should achieve. But that's only half the story, because the historical Jesus reported by the saints really did live. And he's real. It's not either or, it's both and. Yeah, right. So the, so the 13th path is learning, you know, how are we going to shorten the number of lives we have to come back? Well, learn to love and forgive. And really, loving means more forgiving. A lot of us are kind people, but we harbor feelings that we don't forgive one another. And we hold on to those hurts that hold us back. That's what I think primarily is the reason why we come back. Um, part of the reason is that we need to evolve and learn certain things. Sometimes we're not coming back because we've been slapped on the hand and you've been bad. We come back because maybe we needed to do like Kennedy, save the world from a nuclear war. We had a mission. And I, you know, I, I, I believe that's very true. And I think sometimes before we're born, you know, God says, you know, who wants to be, who wants to save the world? Who wants to be president? Or even who wants to be a mother or a father who does something that changed the course of history? And it may be just one event. <clears throat> what about, uh, we were talking, we were talking a little bit earlier about, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's about good. love and and oneness, about that kind of being the underlying fundamental mm -hmm. building blocks. What do yeah. you uh, have you given any thought to about how um, how powerful the feelings of love and oneness can be on say psilocybin mushrooms or things like this? Like, do you think there's a connection that these mushrooms that grow around the planet, you eat them, and we have these out-of-body experiences and the intense feelings of love and oneness and love for the earth well, and this and that? Well, let me, let me go at it this way. I actually read a near-death experience yesterday. This is good timing. Because um, certainly, you know, I, I had a talk at my church, the Fellowship of the Inner Light in Virginia Beach, about, I call it the training wires of the soul. And I had on one side of my uh, podium... Uh, a picture of Christ, and I had on the other side a bonsai tree. And I said, you know, there's really no difference between the two. And that's what Christ tried to say. And that's why I focus on 
some of the Gospel of Thomas, because he talks about Christ in all things, Christ in the rocks, Christ in the bread at the Last Supper. And that's why he said, when you eat bread and you drink wine, you're drinking my flesh and my blood. St. Francis did the same thing. You know, he spoke of um, Sister Air and Brother Fire, and he would even not step on certain stones because he considered them sacred. And most Christianity kind of avoids that because they don't, they want, you know, Jesus Christ being the man, you know, who saves us. But, but Mother Earth, you know, being one with Mother Earth is pagan. Well, if you go back to the early Gospels, that's not what they believed. They believed everything was one. So I had this talk doing, trying to show this, that it's really true. And if you can get that, and, you know, through psilocybin mushrooms, which I've never done, I've never done LSD, I don't know, but this near-death experience I just read kind of explains a few things, because here's this guy, he dies from taking these um, drugs, that was supposed to make you high, and they were in Holland, um, but have a real rush and make you high, almost like LSD. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, he finds himself out of the body, looking down on his body, and he knew that if he went up, he would die. That, you know, he'd permanently cut the sil what's called the silver cord yeah. and die. So he kind of hung in between, and he started observing things, and it came to him that to really understand reality as it is, and this is the crux of all ancient mystery schools about transforming a student and enlightening the mind. He realized that this universe outside the body is not governed by physics. And that to see things as they are, that you have to be outside the physical universe and that's not possible being in a human body, you know. And so those who are going through spiritual training, meditation, you know, they're not going to experience that quantum universe until they get out of the body and see things from a different dimension. And that's, you know, the goal of the ancients was to create, like they did in ancient Egypt, the Greek mysteries, and even from Christ to his apostles, that's why they had that image at the Last Supper of the fire that descended from heaven and lit over their heads. And that's called the Shekinah, and that is a light. I mean, Jacob describes it as a ladder ascending to heaven with angels. So the goal is to create that in the human body while you're alive and not dead. So the goal is, when we take drugs to do that, which I don't advocate, um, goal to do that is without drugs because the drugs can misdirect you. They're, of course, sort of a left-handed path. The Indian shamans do it, um, and that's how shamans are created. You know, they go through this death experience. Uh, supposedly, the mysteries are that Jesus was sealed in the sarcophagus in the Great Pyramid. Air slowly, you know, it slowly suffocates, and they get to a point where they die, but not are, are not dead enough, but they have a transforming near-death experience to come back a transformed mind. Um, you know, I describe it in my book as, you know, four different levels. You know, you have uh, basically a believer, a non-believer to believer. You have a born-again experience, which my wife had. Um, you know, she describes a very transcendent 
born-again experience when she was 21. It changed her life totally. And I compare some of the near-death experiences to being born again because they describe their birth into the afterlife as being born again. And then there's a third called spiritual upgrades where those who come back have gifts of prophecy. Daniel Brinkley saw 13 visions, you know, 104, 14 visions of the future um, through these 13 boxes. And many have seen visions of the future, and that's actually the uh, third book of mine called um, The Armageddon Stones, which is a story about prophecy, but the prophecies of 25 dead saints who saw visions of the near future in the next 20 years. Hmm. So that's the third book, but and it's part of the Dead Saints Chronicle trilogy. Nice. But these stories, these this was the third part, the spiritual upgrades, and then the fourth part of these upgrades are called the metahuman. These are the these are the saints that become Moses, who become the Apostle Paul, who become you know, we can we can assign that to Muhammad who made a difference. Yeah, yeah. Um and then, you know, I describe Edgar Casey and Paul Solomon as you know, when you go through repetitive dying because when someone does a trance and is out of the body that con- that often it transforms the mind and if, not just once, but many, many times and, and when that happens you can develop that Shekinah light that has more direct connection to source. And um, so, you know, that's what I do in the book. I try to define these abilities, you know, by, by connecting these thoughts yeah. and these experiences. And the trends that are happening to people, yeah. I, yeah. I find it fascinating that these, like, people have been having these, like, let's say, use Dead Saints, for example, for thousands of years. Like, how much of, you know, how much of, uh, hmm, let's say, you know, religion or, or spirituality was created from these experiences. And then it's disappointing to me that religion and science now are the ones both that are kind of discounting this whole, um, you know, kind of ridiculing the whole thing. Right. And, and it's not, it, yeah. you know, what would we, what would it be like if, if we've had three, 4,000 years of NDEs to learn from without the interference between from science and religion, you know? Like, like fear, well, I, I, like fear rules our society. Yeah. Like we, fear that creates the fear that, the, the, you know, the fear of death, which in turn, you know, in our materialistic society is, is propagating war and conflict. Really? If, if there wasn't that inherent fear of death, would it, how different would it be? Overcoming fear is the gist of everything. And, you know, we think it's easy. Even, even worry is a type of fear. Yeah. Um, you know, and the media really pushes it to the limit. Oh, you know, with new fears, new terrorists, and, and you know, we, we, we really don't understand even our own definition of God. If God is love, if God is light, if God is our source of life and our creator, um, why, are we, why are we throwing nuclear, willing to throw nuclear weapons at each other and start wars? I'm talking about all sides of the religious aisle. Yeah. Um, if you really believed in God as love and the source of life, why do you believe in a God, an angry God? And that's one of my stories in the governing law of the religion, the belief in an angry God. In 5,000 near-death experiences, I've never seen God angry, ever. Yeah, yeah. So 
Where does this myth come from? Why do we perpetuate what when he the fear in the church? Down. Yeah, wasn't that like a thing in the first? In the, wasn't it? Wasn't like God striking people down more of a thing in the in the old, in the old testament? testament? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, that's why you need to understand the you know the way the Old Testament was written. It was written for young teenagers to understand some of the beliefs because the stories we read on the surface. They're written as true stories when they were translated by these these seventy two Essene scholars brought to e- Egypt, and they translated exactly each in seventy two different rooms. Right? That's why it was called the Septuagint, the translation of the seventy or the seventy two, uh, and you know the the Hebrew into Greek. They translated superficially the stories that were passed down to to kids. So do we really believe that God told prophets to kill children? Hmm. Right? That, you know, that, that they were commanded to do all these dark things that we would never consider God doing today. So was, was God different back then? Did he change when Jesus came? <laughs> no. No. You How know, you have to understand. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, God's always been the same. He's been here a lot longer than mankind. So, you know, these stories were told as a, as a metaphor. So there are different levels of interpretation. It's, you know, one's called the Terracon and then Mazaroth, which is an astronomical interpretation. A good example, Enoch died at 365 years old, the exact number of days in a year. Pretty obvious they were communicating more than just a story about a prophet, uh, Enoch, who was lifted and ascended to heaven. So... You know, if we if we believe that way and we interpret that the world was created in six days and God rested on the seventh, we're going to be stuck in an interpretation of a God, an angry God, and a hateful God, and a judgmental God. And that's just not what the case is. And that's why the story of the dead saints is so important, that we look at our understanding of the Bible. It's not wrong. It's just that we have to look at it with a different point of view. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Hundred percent. I I love the the age we're in right now, where this is becoming more accepted, and and there's more people like yourself doing this kind of research. And you know, we did a show on lucid dreaming as well, which is fascinating to me because I've heard very similar stories with people inside their dreams, lucid dreamings, whether they can um, practice more telepathic type stuff or even healing themselves and this type of thing. Right. And, and you've, you've done a lot of work in the dream realm as well, right? Yeah. That chapter on dreams is really cool because yeah. I've recorded my dreams since I was a teenager and oh. I really, I taught dream interpretation in Japan. Wow. And you know, one thing I even realized and you may, uh, you probably never heard this before, but do you realize when you have a dream that some people see themselves acting like they're observing a person themselves doing something in the dream, but some people see it from like a video game. They're the one observing and they're the one doing the dream. Do you realize that? If you think back no, to your dreams. No, I don't realize that. It, so think back of the last dream you have. Were you looking at yourself doing something or were you doing it? No, yourself? I'm first, I think I'm first, first, first person in there. First person. Yeah. You're actually doing it. Yeah. And, well, I actually found some people are third person. They're watching themselves do it. Wow. And that's, and that's real important because that shows, I think, uh, a, a different kind of dissociation from your, 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 yourself. 
in that, that you're kind of separated from yourself. Um, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It just means it's a different perception, and that's way you're probably, you know, maybe living your life in, in real life. Um, you know, I talk about, you know, after-death communications in dreams, which I have uh, a dozen at least recorded in my book where, you know, grandmas come to me or a very, very dramatically uh, uh, symbolic dream happens where, you know, I have a frank discussion with Jesus a couple of times. I think, um, um, you know, I had a dream on January 1st, 2015, where Jesus said simply, David, cherish the time you have left. Hmm. And then, you know, I had a few more. I'm not going to tell them all. You guys need to read the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, there's, you know, how to interpret a dream. You know, that's why I have the whole chapter on journaling, because... You need to develop a cast of characters when you dream about mom or sister or brother or Frank. You know, what do they mean? What, are they, what, is, what do they mean in your life? So you always look at dreams as if it's talking about yourself. And it's part of this university that we're in. And if you don't pay attention, you're not going to get the lessons that if you start paying attention and you're automatically enrolled in this school, you can then, what will happen is you'll start noticing things and you can test God pretty quickly, you know, what are you saying to me? And literally, something will happen two hours later. I actually call it the law of twos. Meaning, uh, let me give you a good example. Yeah, um, and you kind of you kind of equate that to synchronicity as well, right? The law of twos. Yeah, it's kind of two two laws. One is like the law of twenty four hours, where something you know you just ask something and literally the answer comes in twenty four hours. But then there's one that's more dramatic, and it's so exact it's scary. Um. I had a situation where I was researching uh, for my third book, The Armageddon Stones. I ordered a book called The Fall of a Thousand Suns. And the very first page, the opening dedication is a quote from Buddha that says, you know, basically, and let me actually pull it up exactly so we have the quote. Um, sure. It, you know, it's in chapter, let me just give me a second. I know yeah, what no, chapter yeah, no been. it's been. It's really amazing because... I pulled it from two sources within two hours. <laughs> and it was the same exact quote that I'd never seen before. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that's really strange. And I'm just telling you, when you read it, you're going to kind of fall off your chair and go, oh, my God, that's strange. Um, so let me get to it real quick. Chapter. On the chapter on coincidences in the journal. Here we go. Is that the book about near misses and comet impacts and how it affected the religious beliefs of our ancestors? Or? Oh, the that fall of a... It's actually yeah. about the comet Haley, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's probably the one then, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, the life review... Come on, go back. Okay. Um, and it's where I also made a discovery that happened during the last three... these last three months that... Um, kind of put a key, and that's what I'm trying to communicate. You know how hard it is to communicate in a back cover the amount of things I have in this book and <laughs> yeah. condense it? Yeah. It's like, you know, I want you to read the book, but there's so many things that I can't tell you because I can't tell you on the back cover. Yeah. Uh, recording coincidences. So here we go. So these, I'll read it right to you. Last night I ran into Ben's room and said, Look, son, I found proof of God. Dad, what happened? So on Jim, you know Jim Sinclair, who has the big gold site about gold. 
Yeah, okay. It's called, um, it's called uh, deusmindset.com. Anyway, I went to the top of the page that day because they post things several times a day, right? So things change every hour there. You know, the posting can go down. So the one that I found was at the top of the page said, on January 30th, 2015 at 10.34 a.m., there are two mistakes one can make along the path of truth. Not going all the way and not starting. Buddha. I'm Buddha. So two hours later, by chance, by just pure chance, I downloaded a book on Kindle called The Fall of a Thousand Suns, Comets, Meteors, and History. I opened the first page, and on the top of the page was, there are two mistakes one can make along the path of truth. Not going all the way and not starting. Buddha. I'd never seen this quote before, much less twice within a few hours. So what are the odds of reading Buddha's quote twice, two yeah. hours apart, yeah. from every different source, from very different sources? Apparently, you know, God wanted me to notice, maybe I needed to go read um, a book, and I found a book called, um, by Michael Flip called um, Two Signs and Coincidences, Coincidences from God. So anyway... I'd always seen these coincidences, but now that I was researching near-death experiences and these things were happening, what I'm pointing out is that they started accelerating. Yeah. So, there we go. Well, yeah, so many of our guests have had these synchronicities uh, impact the path of their life, and a lot of times that path leads to them doing the so much so we have to, multiple jingles. Yeah, <laughs> Darren's got a bunch right. of jingles ready to... To rate these synchronicities, yeah, that's a great, that's a great story. Should I play a jingle? Nah, we can save it for the intro. It's okay. okay. <laughs> so I was going to ask you something else about that. Now we we're talking about oh the the dreaming. So besides besides um, taking uh, recording your dreams, which is probably the most powerful tool as far as like being able to remember your dream and and getting yeah. you into that discipline of. Uh, increasing awareness in your dreams as well. Is there any other tricks that you used or you, that you tried that worked? I mean, I've been through uh, stages where I try lucid dreaming and I'm not very good at it. I've only had a couple and I dream a lot and I kind of remember my dreams, but becoming aware in them is difficult. I haven't done all. I've had some of very aware dreams where one I record in the Chronicles is where I'm wrestling this guy, like we're wrestling with each other face to face. And I'm looking into his eyes, and I start strangling him. And his pupils start dilating. I'm going, I'm wrestling with myself. And in the dream, I was aware that I was releasing him, and his eyes went back to normal, and I woke up. That was a lucid dream. Um, to do it consciously, I used to do it a lot when I was younger. I would pray and then find myself in the room of a person I was praying for. And then I realized I was out of the body and doing that, and I go, whoop, back in the body. Um, the hard part is staying lucid in the dream and not popping right back into the body. Yeah. Um, I got out of the discipline of that, and now my dreams are more um, triggered by the need for um, communicating information about what I'm doing, specific information. And, and that's why you know I'm in the chapter back in uh, Chapter 8 about the journal, and I had this realization because people want to know, you know, they meditate, they want to get guidance, they want to have dreams, they want to, you know, have practical things, right, that make a difference. And I had this um, prompting, like, 
go read the story about the still small voice. And I didn't realize that the story that's only in one place in the entire Bible mentioned. It's when uh, Elijah defeated the priest of Baal and he was chased to the woods, fire and earthquake, and then he was chased to the mouth of a cave. God said, Elijah, why are you standing there? And he said, I don't know. And I really understood what he said, because that's been happening during the last three months of my life, specific things to do, and I didn't know why I was doing them, but they saved my ass. <laughs> you know, especially in editing this book, there were so many things that would have been disasters, but I was like, it wasn't like I heard a voice. Some translations describe it as a whisper. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all meditate to get these kind of things, but I... I made a little discovery in these little coincidences about what I call God's breadcrumbs, that when you're devoted single-mindedly to a purpose, and, and you really just start moving forward, and I call it like a yellow leaf floating downstream, that you get promptings to do things and you don't know why you do them. And the point is, is to understand, like in Tai Chi, that when you run into resistance, that you, when you resist something or run into resistance, that you are avoiding the preferred path God wants you to go. And the key is resistance. That's, that's the point. That's what I discovered. And so when I, you know, with me and my cancer, I don't have a lot of resistance. Yeah. And so things just remarkable. We're talking now to the point where it's, several times a day that I'm like, it's not that I'm, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not hearing voices. I was like, do this. Okay. Oh my God. I just saved my ass. Oh my God. I saved my ass again. And, and, you know, these are from very different sources. And so how do you and I get to that point? That's what I, I, you know, it's not, that's why teachers are, have difficulty training the students because it has to be an experience for you to understand how to get there. Yes. And that's what I yeah. try to describe. Yeah. Through some sort of acceptance, level of acceptance of the way things are, like, you know, like the people, places, and things, and, and uh, like going with the flow. It sounds like you've got the law of attraction sort of working with you, like you're focused on that thing, and everything sort of aligns to, to help yeah. you on your path. Yeah, it's hard to teach. Yeah, I agree. It's an experience. And so, you know, I try to convey that. You know, you can have all the wise teachers in the world try to tell you, but it's like the old Chinese stone cutter, you know, who's trying to teach his son how to sharpen swords. You know, you can tell them, well, a little lighter, a little softer on the stone wheel, but the exact amount of light and softness, you have to learn. And, um, and so that's why it's a Zen journey. We're talking, you know, not the religion, but how to gain insight, you know, about what is what is to see reality what is, and you can't see reality as it is until you start basically rising above, like that gentleman in the near-death experience, the quantum side of things. Yeah. That's where you need to come to. Hmm. That's the mystery. So is there any overarching kind of message that you would give people then from all this research? Uh, I mean, obviously reading the book is good. I'm going to... Well, we're going to link to the, the book and everything in the, in the show notes. Where's the best that? place to buy the book? Uh, right now, to buy the book, you can go to uh, dead, deadsaints.org, deadsaints.org, which 
rolls over to deadsaintschronicles.com. Yeah. And you can reg- register by just putting in your email there. I mean, right now we're laying out this week. It should go to the printer, you know, either Friday, Monday, or Tuesday, depending if we run into more problems. But, you know, it's three weeks to print after that. So you can yeah. calculate, you know, mid-March. Uh, you can, you'll can you be able to order on Amazon or on my site. And, um, you know, things will flow from there. Uh, you know, we have a lot of media. Uh, I think, you know, my my goal is to, you know, I have a lot of things to communicate um, to the Christian side of the aisle. I have a lot of things to communicate to the spiritual and metaphysical side of the aisle. I understand both. I spent yeah, enough yeah. time with each to talk to both sides. And that's that's really the, I think, the stunning lens part of the book that these dead saints, and I hate calling them NDEers. That's why, that's one of the reasons, you know, I'm glad I had that. Epiphany you know, on the it, title, it's a yeah. great. It, it, it kind of is, it's really catching on, I, you know, this new new word, and people start calling, you know, they're, instead of NDEers, now they're dead saints. And I think that's more descriptive, because they are, they have been affected. You know, they, they no longer have a fear of death. They become more saintly, and they come back more loving. Well, some of them have um, abilities as well, like psychic abilities, healing abilities. Like, you can't just ignore, or, you know, we won't ignore that, but some, you know, it's easy for... The, the scientists to ignore, but that's what happens, right? People do have those experiences, and you can't just put that all aside and say, oh, you know, it's all... Yeah, I mean, John West has been great. You know, we have, uh, we have, uh, going to have time on Hancock's site. Uh, we're Book of the Month in April on johnhancock.com. And, uh, you know, right now, we haven't wanted to do too much media, um, you know, until the book's actually out, but yeah, yeah. it's going to get per- it's going to get pretty busy. Yeah, yeah, well, this is good practice for you then. This podcast, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. You guys are asking great questions. Great America. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to forward your um, info so, uh, on to oh, Alex any... over at Skeptico. Yeah, as well. I was thinking that as well. We follow this podcast, and we're friends with the guy who's done a lot of uh, work on consciousness and near-death ex- near death experiences is one of his big topics. And he's talked to, mm. oh, Jeff Long and, and Vin, Vin, Pon, Vin Pon Lamel. What is that? Vin Long Pamel. Pon- Vin Long Pamel. Yeah, Lamel. Yeah. Lamel, Lamel. Yeah, he, his name is hard. Yeah. Um, and P.H. Atwater and all, like all, the, all the ones that are doing all this good research. And, and he'd, he'd love to chat with you, I'm sure. Yeah, PMH and I were our actually good friends. She's... She actually spoke along with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at our little school at Hearthfire Lodge in the Shenandoah Valley in the early 80s. So, you know, yeah, I was exposed a bit to all that. Um, I actually went back to one of my old address books, and I had Daniel Brinkley's P.O. Box, but I never really contacted him. Um, So, you know, I've had these contacts, and, you know, my issue was I went and became a businessman for 15 years. <laughs> and like I said, I walked away from everything spiritual. I was tired of it until I had a real experience. Well, I actually got one, two, yeah, three. And, yeah, yeah. and, and, and more is, um, you know, Daniel did a great forward to my book. Um, um, I don't know if you still, I don't think you got that. Did you get his forward with the PDF I sent you? Yeah, you know what? I don't think I did actually. I just Yeah, uh, I didn't I didn't get it till February 3rd. So I don't think you have. So he did a great forward um and uh you hadn't seen John's afterward either. So there's going to be a few surprises when the book comes out. Yeah, um yeah. for you. So. Do you do you plan on doing Oh, you know what? I did get the forward from Daniel. Yeah. 
I did. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you um, plan on doing this in audio at all by any chance? Um, right now, the first step will be to make sure it gets an ebook because, you know, I have, I, this book's unusual in a lot of ways. For one, I have 51 photos and pictures in it. Nobody who does a best selling book has pictures in their book. Right. I'm <laughs> serious. It's like my publicist, uh, DeHart, uh, they said no one does this. They said literally, David, we've done a lot of best selling books. We've never done a book like this. Yours is the most complicated, <laughs> perhaps interesting book we've ever read. Um, it's fascinating and it's difficult, but, um, I just, you know, when people see the photographs that I've carefully chosen with each chapter, um, you know, those photographs create a thousand words. And I just thought, you know, even though the inside's going to be black and white, the ebook, if you have color Kindle, will upload all those nice, beautiful color pictures. So I think it's going to be unique in that way. Uh, so ebook first that we've already you know, I spent a lot of time in Japan and Europe. They already want translators to start translating it. And, um, you know, so we have Australia as well. We had we have also Odyssey uh, magazine that they have a special feature from March 15th to the 30th. That just happened. Susie Holbeach was a famous speaker down there in um, South Africa. And I actually had a premonition about her death that I put in the book, and I got permission to use her photograph. And just coincidentally, um, they were doing a special on near-death experiences, so we'll have that. So mm -hmm. it's going to be pretty busy. I think, you know, the Christian side I, I'm pretty excited about. I know I'm going to have overwhelming response on the spiritual side, and um, we're actually sending the back cover out tomorrow to get reviewed by uh, our Christian friends to see would you go buy this book by reading this? So, um, you know, that's, that's an audience that's very uh, much near my heart that I want to um, talk to. Yeah, that's great. No, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a great book. It's deep. It's very interesting. I can't wait to have it in the studio here for us to flip through because it's one of those ones that, uh, yeah, whenever I'm thinking of NDEs, I can, I can go to for sure. It's a compendium. It's, it's, it's literally, if you bought a hundred books, you'd have to have a hundred books to do what I do in one book. Yeah. So is yeah. there any other big, uh, big overarching uh, messages that you would like to tell anybody before we start wrapping it up here? Yes. I did the, uh, my stepfather died last June. Okay. Um, and uh, my mother asked me, I'm a pastor, so I, I'm licensed in Virginia. Um, so she asked me to do his memorial service. And I remember praying. I said, you know, Ray, this is your memorial service. What do you want me to say? And, uh, this was, uh, like Tuesday. I know he was dying. So I was praying and, uh, he died on a Thursday. And anyway, um, that night, Ray came to me in a dream at 3 a.m., God's favorite time for me to get dreams about deceased talking to me. And you know what he said to me? He was young. He looked, and one thing, he was so happy. He was like, he was Mr. Christian, but you know, there was, he was a NASA guy and he was the afterlife real. Well, it was like when he came, he had this big grin on his face because I'd given him a rock a week before that had the word, you know, those rocks you can get at 7-Eleven that say, 
like trust and miracle and yeah, things yeah. like that. Yeah. I had given him a rock that said, trust, like, trust me. Because Ray would never talk to me about your dad. He's like, ah, they weren't dead. <laughs> you know, so he came to me and he had this grin on his face. He was grinning from ear to ear. And he said, David, he said, David, this is what I want you to say. That we could love each other more. That we need to love each other more. Hmm. That was the message. And so in his memorial service on Saturday, as strange as it sounds to a, how can I say, evangelical audience, mostly, I said, you know, it's true that that Father Ray can speak to us. And his message still is, as Christ said, learn to love one each other more. And that's the overarching message that, I, that we need to learn. It seems simple. You could write it on one page without having a 400-page book, but that's the message. That's kind of what I got from your book as well, is, is uh, just the, the trends throughout that, the people's experiences, the, their perception of God was love. Yes. Yeah. Right on, David. Thanks for coming on. Darren, do you have yeah, anything else yeah, to mention? You, no. <laughs> um, maybe, where, do you, are you on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that where our listeners can track uh, you down? My wife, we, we are, Delenn, are we on Twitter or Facebook? What are we on? We have a Twitter account, but, um, and, and we're on Facebook. What is it? We, that it's actually Twitter is Dead Saints Books. We didn't really push it that much because, funny enough, Dead Saints Twitter was taken. Right. <laughs> so we're still trying to work that out. Um, we did get Dead Saints Org just to make our domain easier. Yeah. Um, so we're working on all that. You know, I have a lot of experience with this, you know, running a company. So, I'm trying to get it all organized before things get too hectic. But yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So we do have a Facebook account, and I'll email you and update you about yeah. all that. Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and especially when the book comes out as well, and we'll get one for the for the studio here, and we'll keep uh, we'll keep an eye on the next two that come out as well. Yeah, uh, the other again, just a quick the uh, training wires of the soul is basically complete. It'll probably come out next September, October. Uh, our um, Facebook account is Dead Saints Chronicles. Okay. Um, but it'll come out probably, and it's just as interesting. Um, it has a lot of chronicle notes. And then the third book, um, you know, I started writing, and that's what I didn't mention in the broadcast, was the, the genesis to writing the trilogy actually started in 1994. When Paul Solomon died, he came to me three months, and that's how the books begin. You know, I dreamed I was in heaven, thought I died, and he said, you know, David, it would be a shame that you should pass before writing your books. Wow. That happened in 1994, but I just put it aside for 19 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that's how this whole thing started, but that book was going to be, and he knew about the work, you know, the Armageddon Stones, that I spent three years, I'd always been interested in prophecy, that's why my biography says, you know, I've always been interested in the Casey prophecies, of Solomon's prophecies, you know, all the saints from the Catholic Church, and then, you know, the, you know, the, the, the theories that I'm dealing with is, why haven't these prophecies come true? Because a lot of them, well, they're shooting for 1998, 1989, 1984, then 1998, 1999, 2012, what's going on? Are they false prophets? What's happening? Yeah, interesting. So I answer those questions in the third book. 
and uh, you know, it's been my, it's my, I guess I'm sort of a scholar in that area, and I'm, I know my stuff, but my time is limited, so I've, I've actually, you know, contracted um, other writers to help me finish. They will have everything that they need to know if my clock runs out. Um, you know, my, like I said, my tumor's growing, and I'm fine. Um, my right leg is a little numb from a left-sided tumor, but mm-hmm. um, I'm okay. Yeah, you sound you sound good. Yeah. I appreciate it, but I'm I'm okay. And you know, the way I tell everybody is, you know, when it's your time, it's like you know, Forrest Mother says, you know, when it's your time, it's your time. Um, but and, you know, I know my time. I, I call it Dorothy's Hourglass. <laughs> you know, at the end of the second book, um, you know, you're watching the upper part of the glass run out of sand. Yeah. And that's what you're focused on. And, you know, people ask me all the time, David, are you afraid of death? I said, absolutely not. Not one bit. Not even a gut like, oh, God. You know, it's more of, will God give me enough time to finish? Um, Because I know these books will make a difference. And uh, so, um, yeah, I've I've arranged all that to, to be right and to be written well. Yeah. So there you there you go. That's great. Well, we'll help you spread the good word. I, I love yeah, that. I found your yeah. Twitter account, so yeah. we will spread the word. <laughs> yeah. Great. All right, well, David. Listen, gentlemen, thank you so much for the opportunity, and uh, I hope we speak again and we'll stay in contact because I know my wife, Delyn, um, will uh, be contacting all of you guys because it's, now it's the hard part, you know, contacting media. Yeah. And yeah. we know... You know, getting I'll be you know busy. So, well, I appreciate glad. the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on, and I, I think you'll do you'll do a great job in the media. It was a great chat, and and uh, thanks for all your time. You too, sir. Okay. Thank you. Good bye. night. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. And big thanks uh, to Dave for coming on the show. Big thanks to John uh, West for setting it up for us, turning us, getting us. I guess the uh, the early in. Early in for sure, yeah. Before the book com- comes out, even I did see it was on Jay Church Radio already, though. So. Yeah, yeah. But this that is motherfucker beat us. Yeah, he's out in front of it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that was good. That was a good one. Yeah, it's uh, a great book. Yeah, it, uh, I listened to it on the can. The problem with listening to those books on, um, <clears throat> so I copied the PDF into my voice dream reader. What are you shaking your head for? How was that for it's, you? It's good, but for was the most it? part. But you lose context a little bit because it reads the footnotes. Yeah. And then it reads the, it reads the title, the chapter, the same as everything, so it blends in. There's so you no, kind of uh, have to pay attention. Otherwise, yeah. you, lose, you lose context a little bit. We bought a Kindle for that. For, but does it do the whisper? The whisper thing? <laughs> we have a physical Kindle? We have a Kindle. Yeah, we yeah, bought we one. Yeah, we should start using that. We should. Yeah. It's we got a bookshelf somewhere. as well. Thanks to so you ordered the bookshelf, basically listener donations. I think ordered the, the listeners bought the bookshelf. Yeah. yeah, thanks listeners for donating to listeners, clean up the studio a little yeah. bit. We've got like a shelf, a big bookshelf full of books, two shelves now, <clears throat> and a Kindle with nothing, and a Kindle with nothing. <laughs> My That's Audible not account is full though. I've got tons of audiobooks. I on think my phone. there's a couple, uh, couple books on the Kindle. Yeah, there's a Greg. Yeah, there's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple. But this book, uh, I tell you, I'm looking forward to getting the hard copy in the studio. It was pretty fantastic. And I love thinking about uh, how we would be 
if we were more accepting of this over the years, you know, thousands of years without uh, sort of religion and science getting in the way, right? What would it be like if we recognized, like, you know, or what kind of influence did these people that came back, like, let's say in a society where it's more accepting, mm-hmm. how how much influence would those people came back that said, I, and, you know, I had this experience of love and God and all this, and people are listening and and believing it. I wonder how different society was back then. Probably pretty different. <laughs> yeah. What are you looking for? Nothing. <laughs> So Dead Saints Chronicles of Book, look for that in mid-January, or mid-March, sorry. That's probably about when this is coming out. No. It'll be, this will be out before that. How, no. We only, it'll be out in a week. Is that it? Yeah. Is that all we got yeah. is uh, yeah. John Michael Greer? <laughs> yeah. I think so. We need to book some people, man. We got March full, but we, uh, or the end of March full. Oh, we didn't even yeah. do an, in- we didn't do an interview last week, did we? No. Huh. So, that's the show's canceled. Yep. Turns out it's been a swell. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Big thanks. Uh, check out grammarica.ca slash support for all the different options there on how you can help uh, support the show. Or click on the show notes. It's all in financially. There as well. Yeah, it's in the show notes. Grammarica.ca slash support. Click on the show notes. Um, yeah, get on a monthly over there or make a donation. Uh, do your part to help the show. Yeah, we want to stay ad ad and sponsor free, right? With uh, no, like, this is just long, rambling conversations with no interruptions. Yeah, or exactly. We got expenses. We got or, breaking yeah. down computers and all sorts of stuff. That we got heat. Well, hopefully, heat only for another couple months, but then we got to find a way to cool this bitch. <laughs> so we're gonna go right from having eating expenses to having cooling expenses expenses. that's the problem when you turn a walk-in freezer into a studio and you live in canada (laughs) anyways anyway spam crown i like to get people's emails and feedback yeah of course it's a whole lot easier to spam gram now if you don't want to do it through the show notes you go to grammarica.ca and there's Gram spam buttons all over yeah, the place. I don't think you should be putting buttons to spam me on the top of the website, buddy. Too late. So feel uh, free to feel free to take it down. Now. You know what I was thinking about the reviews too. Reviewing the show is I think like our guests when we when we reach out to potential guests and they check us out. I think it helps to have those reviews, uh, you know, out there, right? However Absolutely. many many reviews. So and it makes us feel good inside. Yeah, <laughs> that's the main thing. <laughs> that's the main keeps thing. keeps us going. Exactly. <laughs> Except when you call us douchebags. That's okay, too. So, yeah, spam, gram, support the show. The Spreaker, or sorry, not the Spreaker, the uh, speak pipe button's working again, so you can leave us voicemails. And, yeah, all that fun stuff. Tell your friends about this motherfucker. Sign people up for the newsletter. If you want a t-shirt, donate 25 or more. There's t-shirts on the website as well. There's, There's a few left. Like, this isn't, like, an official store. Like, I get to the post office once a week to mail these yeah. things out, so please don't expect them to show up, like, next day delivery, like Amazon Prime or something like that. It ain't gonna happen. Amazon Prime. I actually ordered a meat thermometer. <laughs> Be here tomorrow. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. You were going to say something about magnets. Tell your probably. friends about the show. Oh, yeah, we got the magnets for five bucks or new subscribers. We should get a new shipment to those in this week. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. And we will see you next week.
I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone. And don't 